Hello and welcome to episode 180 of the Creighton Crowbar. It is March 15th, 2017, the Ides of March. And joining me today are Philippa War. Hello. Tom Senior. Hello. And me, Chris Thurston, whose name I forgot to say at the beginning, even though it's my name. Mm. That's the kind of professionalism you can expect if you choose to join us at our very first live podcast. Which, uh, as of as today, has been locked in and confirmed for EGX Resed at 4.30pm on Friday the 31st of March. That's very exciting. Mm. Mm. Uh, it is, attendance of the po- podcast stuff is free to Resed ticket holders and we'll stick a link in the show notes where you can find out more. Oh, it also thing. involves us resurrecting the dead because Graham is going to be there. Graham's going to be there. Zombie Graham. Mm-hmm. Back from the grave. You can find out how tall the dead man can be. And I think if you can't get tickets or can't get down there, it's on the EGX Twitch stream also. Cool. I didn't realise that. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's that's cool. Okay. I do believe. That was our that was our plug. We just did a plug. I know. It's Imagine. Good, isn't it? Yeah. That's exciting. I'm looking forward to it, actually. It's been, it's been, we've been doing this for, as I just said, 180 episodes, which feels like an incredibly long time. Mm. But we've never done a live one. So, it's time. I haven't yet confirmed if we're allowed to drink in the venue. Probably not. Well, you can always drink before. It's preloading. <laughs> yep. I do not advise that. I, that's not an advocation on an official capacity. I meant hydrate. If Get I hydrated, children. Wobble my way on stage at 4.30 in the afternoon at EGX Res. Just rest assured, I'm very tired. <laughs> I should It'll be s- fine. No. It's fine, Pip. It's fine. <laughs> what else can people expect at Res, actually? Because uh, I know that you've... Uh, they can definitely expect me on stage interviewing people about nights and bikes. Cool. Uh, Rex and Moo, who will be talking about that, and I will be asking them lots of questions about nights and bikes and miscellaneous other things, and other people can ask questions as well. There will Excellent. be a Q and or A at the end. <laughs> And or a yes, hmm. I think that day uh, William Pugh is doing a talk also, and someone else whose name I have totally forgotten as uh, by the subject of the talk. <laughs> I'm not sure why we're trying to remember this information. When no, I feel listeners like at I'm, home, this can, is a test. It is, yeah. Well, listeners at home can just look this up on the internet. Yeah, which is actually a more efficient way of receiving information oh, than God, people than trying on a to get me to remember trying it. Trying to remember it. God. Yeah, indeed. Anyway, that's basically all of our podcast news for the week. This week's episode, uh, to commemorate 180, we're going to celebrate it by basically talking about space for mm. hours. Can I, before we go to space, can I talk about the underground? Yes. <laughs> the yes. real life underground on planet Earth. Okay. Because <laughs> I. That's actually where Prometheus starts. <laughs> oh. The journey cool. to the stars begins in a cave. Uh, <laughs> but this is the best cave ever. Uh, mm. because I went to, uh, Krakow recently and, uh, I was on a holiday, went to their salt mine which stretches beneath the earth and apparently it's basically the size of the Eiffel Tower, but mm-hmm. underground. Hmm. And uh, you, you walk down there for two and a half kilometres, you don't, don't, don't go down three levels, and then they say, that was 1% of the mines. <laughs> uh, by the way, don't go uh, anywhere else except where I go, because you could l- get lost down here forever and die, because <laughs> there are so many uncharted shafts and things. But down there, um, 
it's just all the walls and the floors and the ceilings, everything is made of salt. They've just carved this huge kind of palace out of salt. And because it was done during religious times, they've carved loads of chapels into the salt as well. So you, you know, there are just dozens and dozens of chapels everywhere with statues of the Virgin Mary carved out of salt. Mm. Uh, and uh, at one point uh, I went down there and there's an entire, there's a massive cathedral underground, like 100 meters underground. And it's carved purely out of salt. And it's like the floor is this sort of glassy obsidian black that is salt. But if you shine a light into it, you see the light kind of disseminate through the, the salt crystals uh, under under your feet. And it's absolutely astonishing. It's the most kind of Elder Scrolls place <laughs> I've ever been in my life. I actually felt as though I was in one of the dungeons that you play uh, in, in video games. And specifically, it was a lot like the uh, Chalice Dungeons in Bloodborne. Uh, <laughs> literally, the design of the space was the same as some of the rooms, uh, some of the kind of procedurally generated rooms in uh, Bloodborne's kind of uh, kind of underground endless dungeon mode that is part of that game so if you if you like game dungeons and uh, bloodborne <laughs> or salt or salt you could lick the walls which i did um, what was it like it was it was well well seasoned <laughs> really really nice um surprisingly tasty actually uh people love salt i mean that's just it's the great, thing isn't it yeah, yeah it's really bad for you but it's really good you could just bring your lunch along and then rub it on the wall you really could yeah, yeah. in fact my girlfriend bought a giant brick of salt uh separately and apparently she already have one uh, no she didn't buy another one this is one she had previously oh, and okay. apparently you can cook steak on it and stuff i was like i don't <laughs> yes. believe, i don't believe her i'll believe it when i see it but if you're into video games for dungeons and you get the chance to go to the salt mines in krakow it is uh prepared to be transported to the world another world uh, of underground <laughs> a world of salty amazing. discovery <laughs> yeah it's delicious we should just do a lonely planet style podcast yeah. that would be good just places that are like video games <laughs> yeah definitely mm. that's my news for the week yeah tom's salty holiday <laughs> but uh you've also been to space recently tom i have uh, i had the chance to uh, play dawn of war 3 Hmm. In multiplayer, hmm. and it was very exciting and loud and stressful. <laughs> so, if you like being stressed in uh, in space with lasers and orcs, uh, then this is the game for you. Uh, it was quite an interesting uh, shift from the single player uh, missions I've played. Of course, this is the RTS from uh, Relic, set in the Warhammer Forty Thousand universe. There are three factions: there are the Space Marines, who are humans, robot men; uh, there are the orcs, who are big green. You know, what orcs are. And the Eldar, who are elves. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the, be the best thing about the game is that they're all very, very, very different. Uh, the Space Marines are kind of your onboarding point there, your fairly standard RTS faction. Their big quirk is they have drop pods that are basically like a second building queue. So you can load dreadnoughts in, or men or just big machine guns into one of these things and then throw them down onto the battlefield whenever you like and create like an alpha strike. Uh, and so that's that's your standard one. Uh, there are the Eldar who can like put up teleporters and that lets them do lots of sneaky things. They can cloak a lot. Um, they're very, very good in the early game and very, very fast and fragile. And then there are the orcs who are awesome. <laughs> they're really, really good. Uh, they're normally just a big stupid horde army that are basically the barbarian hordes and mm. you, know, you expect loads of them to just run forward and they shout wah a lot. That's a, a feature. And, uh, they, they kick face. Uh, but they've put in a really interesting salvaging mechanic where all, everything that gets destroyed on the battlefield of a certain size, be it a kind of walker or a tank or something, just leaves scrap on the battlefield. Mm. And the orcs can go and pillage the scrap 
and it goes gets transported to a nearby war tower that they can build and uh, these towers like you just see these big glowing piles of scrap building and building as more and more junk gets stored at the bottom there then your little kind of gobliny gretchen dudes uh, you can order them to just turn the scrap into a tank and it's a really interesting take on this because RTSs have played with the salvage idea loads. But Total Annihilation had it. Total Annihilation had it. Supreme Commando was mm. a really important part of competitive playing in Subcom because feeding was a big thing where you could feed extra resources by being too aggressive and, you know, lots mm. of failed assaults would give them the resources to build more stuff, which is kind of how the orcs work, but in a much more interesting way because when you turn that scrap into a tank, the tank is at like 70% health. So you're, you've got this interesting... Uh, like fast attack option that's a bit shit but if you need to make a vital push at the right time um, you can use salvage and use scrap to suddenly create an army out of nowhere and these war towers you can build them anywhere on the map that you like so you can play in quite a devious and interesting way by hiding a tower somewhere getting loads of scrap and then suddenly just attacking with a tank and a killer can mm. and a copter from just nowhere and and when it works properly you do get these kind of huge massing hordes of orcs that they stand under the tower and you, when you activate the tower, it starts a war and they'll get powered up and they'll roll out and they're all fast and really, really hard. So the, these really different factions, uh, quite excited to play with in single player, which in my experience is mostly just being kind of stomp the AI, mm-hmm. but in multiplayer, they collide in a just, just the extraordinarily complex context of their one multiplayer mode, which is, um, just to use an, a lazy shorthand, a bit like a MOBA sort of. Okay, in, in the way of. that the objectives are structured. Mm. So you have a lane type uh, deal in the map we played anyway, where um, each uh, faction on either side of the map has like a, a shield generator, which protects the turret, which in turn protects the core. And so, and they're all kind of in a row. <laughs> mm. Hence looks a lot like the mid lane of a, yeah. uh, of a, of a MOBA. And in addition to that, there are points all over the map that you can capture to generate resources and build them in certain ways to either produce more power or requisition. Power is for tanks and heavy armor. Requisition is for kind of infantry troops. Then there are other resource points that generate hero points. And these let you call down your big kind of super mega troops. Um, those are interesting and they're balanced in lots of interesting different ways. But when all of those factors collide, you have just an insanely complicated, uh, like just hodgepodge of just chaos and it was it was interesting because it reminded me of um a couple of heroes but even more just arcane and mm. and, and crazy and because there are so many kind of heroes and hero abilities popping that you, there's so much to think about all the time you've you've got to constantly upgrade your resource nodes so they're producing the optimum amount of resource even as you're trying to micromanage heroes and put rts to the fray and it just all felt just bit overcomplicated to be honest mm. and a little bit too mad i was going to ask like given i've played a little bit of the single player mm. and it was just kind of like a happy shoot the elves space man stompy game absolutely yeah um which i enjoyed mm. but you know I, and for you to say that it's maybe too complicated as the person i know who's played the most company of heroes in a competitive way <laughs> yeah like, that's a concern i would say so i think it's going to be I think it's going to be a very, very rough experience for people trying to get into it. Mm. Who, um, if you're used to just kind of really aggressively capping points and kind of back capping the enemy and stuff like that, which is what you do a lot of company of heroes, deny them key resources. It's going to be a really miserable experience for people who don't have the basic kind of experience of that happening. Yeah. Cause it's, it's very different to Starcraft even, um, where, you know, the middle lines are very defined and your bases are very defined, uh, in company of heroes and in, 
Dawn of War 3, the resources are everywhere. So you, you're contesting everywhere and everywhere should be sort of contested to some extent or you should be threatening it. Mm. And just the amount you have to keep in your brain to do that in this game is, is insane, I would say. Um, I think they've, I think they've overcomplicated the resource system by having, um, both hero points and customizable upgrade points for power acquisition. And mm. this is good. This also sounds really technical and you, you'll understand when you start playing it. But I think there's just, there's, I think there's too much focus on resource generation rather than the armies, which mm. is what's really exciting about that game. It's the troops and uh, it's their interactions and the way the heroes interact with the troops because they can buff each other and you can customize the heroes to have various loadouts and your armies can have various loadouts that change their behavior. And that stuff's really interesting. I just think that if they just simplified the resource layer a lot, they could, they could that would allow the, the, the main combat to shine and the combat looks amazing and it's really exciting. And the, the great benefit of this MOBA style uh, structure to the map is that it creates these enormous flashpoints where all of the all of the and everyone on the battlefield is incentivized to go to one place to mm. just fucking duke it out and it's like win or lose this is this is the moment uh, and that that looks absolutely fantastic and feels amazing in the game uh, but i think getting to that point as a new player is going to be very very difficult is it the sort of thing that might be easier either 2v2 or like 2v2 skirmish something like that like yeah the, if 2v2 is the mode they used to demo it but i played 1v1 with uh, with help of like one of their QA guys mm. who are just total like elite company of heroes players yeah. like they know they know the game inside out um but uh I talked to Philip Bull the game director and uh, he he says that 3v3 is the best way to play it just mm. because you kind of embrace the carnage and you're not uh, you know a little bit of resource gener- loss here and there like a, a little bit of resource inefficiency probably just modulates out across the three armies so it's a bit more forgiving right uh, especially on the larger maps uh, so i have a feeling that maybe that'd be the way to play it but then I wonder, it being so complicated with so many loadouts, how it will work as a pub game, just dropping into a game and expecting everyone to be on the same page and on the same level. And what if everyone wants to go early game Eldar? I mean, that's quite fun and it could work, but what if that's not the optimal way to play it? So it's, yeah, yeah. it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays in a pub sense. I think, I think I'm going to love it getting in with two friends and smashing up the AI a lot mm. and maybe going online a little bit. And that's going to be loads of fun. Um, but I do I kind of fear for it a little, a little bit as a kind of pub game. And how it, I mean, Dota is very complicated, but it feels like the, the the matchmaking is there. It seems quite good. It's also, I mean, Dota benefits, I suppose, from the fact that you are controlling one hero, yeah, and that is all you're going to worry it's about for the rest of the game. About. And mm. there is one resource that really matters, and mm. that is going to be the only thing you're going to worry about for the rest of the game. And you're also that you have limited responsibility for lanes that aren't your own. Yeah, really, like obviously you should be playing the map, but mm. you're not expected to. It sounds like a bit like trying, like playing Dota as a sing- as a one v one RTS where one player mm. controls mm. all five heroes. Yeah, in three different lanes. Yeah, and you're not just farming creeps on three lanes. You're kind of juggling all these resources at the same mm. time and, and powering them up. And to be honest, like because the resource stuff is so abstract anyway, like requisition is is a useful word. But I mean, what does it mean? Why does pressing? Why does upgrading this? blob so it makes more requisition what does that mean mm. and then installing a listening post on it which protects it like what does that mean i mean it's, it, a lot of that stuff is just going to be very straight hard to get your head around as a new player I mean, even though it builds in quite an interesting way off what relic have done previously yeah i mean does it feel like this is the game they really wanted to make because they've reinvented dawn of war twice right <laughs> yeah like is this is this a is it just a step back to dawn of war one in that sense or is it like oh okay they've they've you know or even just expanding that to relics broader kind of strategy you know 
thing in general like is this the, the evolution of what they've been trying to do the entire time or is it i don't know it's kind of a mashup uh because they've with dawn of war 2 they really embraced the kind of again they they looked at uh like dota and they looked at you know uh that genre and they looked at the heroes and the quick use abilities and the kind of uh the way they affect space and they turned that into a game a squad tactical squad game which wasn't a moba at all but it, it had that dna in it uh and now it feels like they've taken a different they've taken something else from the moba and uh, then also put in a load of company of heroes, uh, mm. which isn't going to be very familiar to Dawn of War players, because frankly, like the Dawn of War resource system has always been like super simple, really. Mm. Um, and the relationship between power is going to be interesting to watch how the Dawn of War community meshes with it. Right. But I think if for, for the hardcore, there's something there. I think there's something to really get your teeth into with great depth. I was wondering if it has that kind of middle, just like knockabout potential. Hmm. I'm not sure. It, I'm not sure it does, but we'll see. Hmm. Interesting. Mm. I'm definitely excited about it because the single player seems like kind of like knockabout. Yeah, that, fun, which yeah. is sort of interesting to have yeah. both of those things. But again, StarCraft is an example of an RTS that hmm. succeeds perfectly well, having a hardcore multiplayer mode that most people will never play, and a sort of knockabout single player campaign that lets you play with those things in a safe environment. So yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point, and hopefully it will be that because the game looks beautiful. Like the, I love the animation and the the effects, and it's just so kind of crazy good fan service i'd say are the the mega units like the knight and the wraith knight are they in multiplayer uh they sure are yes yeah they're very important all right cool all right that's all i wanted to know i'll, I'll try i'll try and make it work now <laughs> i love the way that knight is animated it's, I, holy shit, it's, okay. it's yeah. gorgeous like i mean i think we can maybe this is a digression back to miniatures podcast land but mm. like there's something about seeing those characters animated that is Real really cool. Yeah, they've done an amazing job with the animation. Aesthetically, it's fantastic. Relic have always been excellent at creating really satisfying, impactful mm. kind of visuals on, on RTS. Just a big robot venting heat. Yeah. It's one of the coolest kind of things. Shooting apparently. fire out of every orifice while yeah. it rains down rockets. Uh, you know, that's what I want. Mm. <laughs> that's what I want from that. Yeah, yeah. It's fantastic. Excellent thunky sounds on rockets. Yeah, the, um, the orc walker is amazing as well. Like this enormous fat waddling thing that has to have a sit down every now and then because <laughs> it gets too tired <laughs> and so loads of steam blows out of it <laughs> and it can hammer its chest and loads of grots come out to repair it it's, oh, it's so good so good cool exciting mm. pip what have you been up to well i have actually been back playing no man's sky hmm. um, had a big update it did the pathfinder update which was the second of their sort of big chunky oops non just bug fixing updates um and so this one had a load of stuff about like vehicles that you could use on planets and things to get around them quickly which i think is kind of a a sort of um a way of getting around the fact that a lot of people didn't like the experience of flying and found that a bit clunky so you'd now be able to pick up like these vehicles that go along and you can use one of them for like harvesting one of them can go across water you know there's another that's a bit sort of more jack of all tradesy um and there were also like a bunch of new building options and cosmetic things um and i must say i wasn't particularly interested in those because I like space to be lonely and not really about sort of encountering other people's bases. <laughs> so um, I was far more excited about the photo mode. Mm. Um, they've had a photo mode in the game before, but this is a proper like overhauled version that was done 
as a collaboration with Duncan Harris from Dead End Thrills, which is the amazing screenshot um, website where he posts all of his projects and things. Um, And so that's just been really, really good fun because I was already to the point where I was treating the game a bit more like a, I don't know, like a, a random button pusher thing where you where you'd like slap a button and it would just spit out a planet of Mm. varying you know colors and shapes and animals and plants and things and i'd just have a little wander around and then hop back in my spaceship and on to the next one so this has been a really nice neat way of just slipping in and out of picture taking mode without faffing with the um hud removal that you'd have to do before and it also lets you um mess around with the uh field of view it lets you um put different filters so for different visual effects um it lets you fiddle with the fog and the cloud and you know like all of that kind of stuff and i yeah it's just been really fun and nice and it's been cool trying to recreate the game the feeling that I have when I play it and when it gives me something lovely um in a picture that I can then share with other people because I think that one of the big things from before was I'd sort of have these feelings of the game being you know, you'd find a planet that actually felt enormous or interesting or cool or warm or something. And it would just absolutely fail to translate into the accompanying screenshots. And so this has been awesome just in that it helps almost translate something Mm. for Mm. other people. Um, So that's really, really awesome. Um, And I think... Something that has impressed me, like, I think we've talked ad infinitum about the problems with the launch of No Man's Sky and with, like, some of the advertising or marketing decisions. Um, But I, I have always enjoyed the game that I got from it, if you see what I mean. Mm. I don't necessarily think that that measured up to what, I thought or what I think it's reasonable to think you would have been getting but I think it was always something that I really enjoyed and then um, these updates have actually been significant chunks of stuff and Hmm. have been very much a response to I think what people wanted from the game so my overall impression is that they had a feeling that they wanted people to have when they played the game and sort of maybe tried to put the game mechanics and sort of the accompanying, I, I guess, systems in place to, to encourage people to feel those things. And that didn't really work. And so obviously when the game came out, there was a lot of disappointment and stuff. But then I think in the time since they've sort of maybe let go of that a bit and just gone fine we'll just we'll add base building we'll add this Mm. we'll add that we'll add cars we'll add shareable racetracks we'll add you know like all of that kind of stuff and I think that that is a an interesting and decent response 
And so I, I was talking to you kind of half jokingly, Chris, the other mm. day and just sort of said, I guess if they add a few more of these updates, it's not out of the realms of possibility that I could make this one of my games of 2017. Right. <laughs> sort of even though it so mm. massively missed the mark when it actually came out. Um, so, yeah. And also... I was writing about this on RPS and like I think one of the comments was like loads of the comments were really nice but one of them was just a bit snippy it felt like and said something like oh so you're pleased that your expensive game is now it has an update that makes it as good as a free strange thing game and it's like no that's not what I'm saying at all um just because I only like gravitate towards a thin slice of it doesn't mean that I'm that's the only reason that I'm impressed or pleased mm. you know and also strange thing games are very different go away <laughs> um, but yeah so that was really cool and I really really would like more developers to experiment with photo modes I think there's a few out there who do or you know like there are other sort of basic options that will hmm. maybe a debug console that the developers like leave access easily for the player um and you can switch off things like the um the text on screen or you mm. can switch off the interface elements and you can you know go free cam and you know all of that kind of stuff you know just to sort of set up screenshots and things um but i think that it would be an interesting thing for particular types of um artistic directors uh who maybe want to add a bit more of their i guess voice or aesthetic in that you know you could see people adding particular filters to really amp up mm. an aspect of the game or to sort of play with the color palettes in a way that would maybe get people to experience different things from the environments that you spent such a long time creating and i mm. i'd really be interested to see what people could do with that if they had a bit of extra time or mm. if it was something that became standard in games do you find uh, yourself taking more pictures of landscapes or the weird animals? Um, some and some. I seem to have a knack for just stumbling on the weirdest, dorkiest looking animals. And so there's a lot of just sort of, you know, disgruntled beavers with giant teeth or, mm. you know, like a a really judgy looking locust crab thing. And so, <laughs> you know, you sort of... I, I try and take pictures of them just to kind of document them, but I'm actually more inclined to video them because they look even weirder or sillier when yeah. they're sort of roaming around. Um, I, I think I tend to gravitate towards landscapes and particular sort of um, really striking shapes. Like I had a solar system that seemed to be absolutely just full of planets that had these strange like worm-like rocks mm -hmm. that would just sort of like undulate across the landscape and stuff and there was nothing else on most of them but they would just form these amazing um lines and shadows mm. and so that was just this awesome thing that i could then you know set the field of view to 
maximum and mm. you know really get a, a sense of it being a sweeping like panorama and you know raise the camera up to actually properly get a a look down as if from from high up it's rather good sweet i love photo modes mm, uh, i like mm. there's a good one in shadow of mordor mm. Um, because you can turn it on your own character's face and his facial expressions are amazing. <laughs> so stupid. He looks very cross. <laughs> just demented. Like you see all of his teeth and they're just, yeah, very strange. That's true. So we, we, uh, and we'll get back to Numbers Cover briefly, but we totally skipped over the announcement of Shadow of War. Yeah. And really. the reason we skipped over that was because, um, I was, I've, I saw it. I saw the, the gameplay demo for the sequel to Shadow of Mordor that, uh, it's now been released as a video, so mm. it's fine. But when we recorded the last podcast, I was still embargoed on it, so we didn't know if I could talk about it. So, yeah. But yeah, looks good. Yeah, I'm really excited about that. drama. I'm sad that they didn't call it Shadow of More Mordor. Yeah. <laughs> that would, wouldn't have worked amazingly, <laughs> well, but it would have made me pleased. I saw it at Warner, um, which is near Soho in London, yeah. and then I walked off down Wardour Street, and it was really <laughs> confused my brain. To be in the shadow of Wardour. Um, is it set in that street? <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, you you don't, one does not simply walk into the game on Wardour Street. Actually, you do. Um, but no, you've also... got to press a buzzer, right? Oh, to get into, to get into, to, to get into Mordor. To get into Warnor. Yes. <laughs> oh, to get into Warnor Brawthor. Just say Wardour Street to Warnor, yes. Yeah, exactly. It's only a, so your five minute walk from left at Warnor to Mordor for one. <laughs> anyway, nonsense. Something about, um, it's, it's, it's been nice because I know, I know obviously because, you know, I live here, but that you have not really stopped playing No Man's Sky for any length of time, or at least, you know, this like most recent return to it has <clears throat> been pretty substantial. And yeah. it's really nice to see. And I, I know of, of friends on Twitter who have the same experience of it that that game has had loads of mileage with people who just sort of enjoy tooling around in it and that's not to deny the fact that i think it under you know it didn't meet well i say to say under under performed but like it, it didn't meet people's expectations of it or where their expectations were put but your enjoyment of it seems you know frames the response to that game in in, in, a, in a sort of a different light i think it's sort of nice to see someone just get on with it and have fun and not mm. not be furious 100 percent of the time been nice it, to see. I think for me it feels more like just going for a walk does. You know, mm. I get the same pleasure of those bursts of, oh, there's a really cool thing over there. There's a bird. There's a, you know, there's a um, grasshopper. There's this, there's that, you know. Mm. And so it, it's a similar kind of gentle but still, you know, rewarding um, jaunt through space while I've got maybe something playing on the other monitor or mm. even when I haven't. Um, and the other thing I think is just that um, I, it's, yeah, it's an odd one, but I, because it doesn't really have anything in common, but in my head it feels sort of like it would be friends with Mew Cartographer, which mm. is the other thing that I've been playing, which is, um, it's a game where a lot of the uh, the joy of it comes from figuring out the controls. So I won't dwell too much on how it works, but essentially you have a bunch of different 
tools on a display kind of that that you can use to navigate this strange alien landscape and mm. make it respond to your um tweaks and changes on various dials and things and that has a similar kind of um pleasure in terms of color and sound and little discoveries mm. and sort of joyful little discoveries as well so so that's a sort of a pairing i guess to mm. to bear in mind if if one has tickled your fancy mm. the other one also exists <laughs> yeah it feels like a better way of understanding no man's sky is as a sort of procedural silly walk generator <laughs> not silly walk generator that would be that's like, sport. Yeah, that is sport. Or, um, yeah, or any <laughs> game with like kinematic kind of physics. Yeah. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, you know what I mean? Like sort of as a sort of, yeah, like you say, a button that you push to see some fun little angry Ewoks with mushroom faces. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, uh, and if people haven't, I'll put, I'll put links to your No Man's Sky videos in, in the show notes because they're well worth watching for. I a, made them into a playlist. Oh, cool. <laughs> a gentle tour of what's best about that game, which is just janky as looking <laughs> fucking weirdos. <laughs> Some of whom need to sort out their leg day routines i'll yeah. tell you that much it's like some have really overdone it some just did not bother for about speaking, 15 years speaking of sport one of the highlights of that video series for me is is the one where that game like that game gave you a, that that's a big walking dick one of them <laughs> i did not see that you didn't see it at the time no. did you? you posted it and didn't really realize but no, a lot of other people did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got a lot of messages <laughs> saying, um. <laughs> Just a bipedal penis with little balls. Amazing. Yeah. Thanks, Hello Games. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for sharing your space chat. No worries. Pip has to be ejected into space now, briefly. I do, briefly, <coughs> but I will be back for questions, I do believe. Yeah, rare that this happens on the podcast. I think we had one ever where I had to realise I had to run to work during the first half of the podcast. I'd forgotten <laughs> something important and just crashed back in through the door for questions. Um, but no, so Pip. Yes. I will see you, you guys Leave in a podcast house. Enjoy your important mega space chat. Okay. We'll just sit here awkwardly as Pip leaves the room. I might edit this bit out. I might not. Take your cake and leave. Take your cake and your chair. Bye, Pip. Well, that ends that then. Feel abandoned. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Because now it's just you and me, Tom. But there's a lot more space to go. Oh, Be yes. Because um, I have spent a lot of this week, almost 30 hours now of this Good week, yeah. in Andromeda. Mm. This is why you left Easy Gamer, Chris. Yeah. So you could just play <laughs> Andromeda. Someone, <laughs> someone sent a question into the podcast uh, a little while ago that we didn't answer, um, specifically because at that point I knew I was leaving PC Gamer, but we hadn't said... Um, 
we hadn't said that yet. I hadn't made that public yet. And someone sent in the question, how much time has Chris booked off work to play Mass Effect Andromeda? <laughs> uh, and the answer would have honestly been, I've resigned. Um, Pulled the ejector seat. Yeah, I, I didn't really. Um, although, you know, this is one of my first sort of big reviews as a, <coughs> a freelancer. So I'm still, you know, writing a review for PC Gamer and doing some other coverage and stuff. Um, I have to say, before I talk about it, uh, and I feel like I can, t- I can say this, um, anything I say about it has to abide by a, uh, a particular embargo and a little bit of a weird embargo. Yeah. Which is that, um, which is, I think, so as of the time people listen to this, the game will be out in its sort of early access form, which doesn't mean the same for EA games as it does on Steam. <laughs> probably pick a different phrase. Yeah, they probably should. It's, it, it means pre-ordered and you can play it now for a bit. And I think that early access version of the game stops at a certain point and they don't want anyone talking or showing video uh, that's why. past that point of the game, which I do sort of understand. They don't want, you know, videos of the ending or, of you know, big spoilers going up yeah. while people are still playing the opening. However, it is difficult to obviously give a full opinion of the game. So I'll probably just outline some of my my thoughts on it so far, but not definitively and also one of the reasons that this is a weird confine to work within is that uh, mass effect andromeda which is as you might imagine the new mass effect game has a really slow start hmm. um and i'll like talk about that a little bit and specifically the point where it starts to pick up some pace and like a many many rpgs before it many many bioware rpgs before it starts to get some kind of traction and pick up and you start to find out what it's about what it's really about but as a game and as a story and mm. and what your next you know tens of hours of of play are going to entail happens just after the point that i'm not allowed to talk about which is weird i feel like no one will complain if i say it gets a lot better after a slow start yeah but the slow start is all we have but the slow start is all we have so if this sounds a little bit more negative or something then that's my weird caveat. I've never had to like caveat mm. negative <laughs> negativity for a game. Yes. With the fact that there's positive things I can't talk about. So, um, if you don't know what Andromeda is, I'm not going to spoil anything, but, or anything important, but, um, it, this is the answer to how do we make a sequel to Mass Effect, given how beloved those games were and how much demand there is for them. Five years later, Crazily, five years after Mass Effect 3. Um, given how beloved that universe was and how beloved that story was and the fact that the ending to that story was um, final in a, in a, a bunch of ways, yeah. branching, complicated ways uh, that essentially um, create huge problems for anyone following after them. And the answer is to move everything basically to completely pick up sticks in the milky way and bugger off to a different galaxy andromeda and even though this is obviously like a decision that has been made because to do anything else is really difficult (laughs) in that setting yeah i think a prequel would have been unsatisfying for people um i think a sequel would have only disappointed people with the way how it would have to have downplayed the consequences of Shepard's story just to make any kind of sense given how diverse those endings are um and a straight up reboot i think it's probably an op was an option but it might have felt a bit too soon yeah um there are things about andromeda that feel like a bit of a reboot actually um 
And what they've settled on is this sort of big journey. And so it's a retcon to an extent, essentially. Mm-hmm. The, the beginning of the story, and this is obviously a minute one stuff or even first previews years ago stuff, so hopefully this doesn't qualify as a spoiler, is that um, at some point during uh, Shepard's adventures, and so 2185, which I think it co- vaguely coincides with the time when Shepard was buggering about with Cerberus in Mass Effect 2, mm. which is a kind of a great point to pick for Mass Effect Andromeda to kick off, because it's the time when Shepard has had probably the least impact on yeah. the galaxy, and most people don't even know who they are, really, because they've not yet re-emerged. Mass Effect 1 is obviously, those events have happened, but... Yeah. Um, you know, all a sort of a, a, a pan-galactic coalition of different species called the Andromeda Initiative come together and they launch these giant arc ships um, at the Andromeda Galaxy. And 600 and something years later, they arrive in Andromeda. Um, it is now 600 years after the events of Mass Effect, which have taken place in a different galaxy that you cannot make any contact with. So we have moved the fuck on. Literally a parallel universe. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not quite the J.J. Abrams Star Trek yeah. divergent timeline thing, mm. but it allows them to very sort of gingerly pick and choose what they want to pay reference it's, to. It's a really smart reset for that. I mean, there's no other way they could have done it, I can imagine. I think I think it is. It's a really smart mm. decision, and so the you know this is what it sets up early. Um, where I think it it hits some immediate. So it's almost a pun because like as you know, as Andromeda begins, things aren't necessarily all spectacularly well with the Andromeda Initiative and the situation it finds itself in in Andromeda and it's a scramble and, you know, a scramble to survive and there's a sort of a race against time and lots of different sort of themes about like the the fact that all of these people have been brought over in cryostasis, but the situation people find themselves in is bad enough that not everyone can be brought out of cryostasis and colonies need to be founded and have failed and there's all these different reasons why and hostile aliens and you know, phenomena and uh, things going wrong. And, and that's what you enter into. Um, one of its um, issues that it hits uh, very early, I think unlike Mass Effect 1, which as I'll get to is the game it's most like, is that it's got a lot of storytelling work to do quite early to explain yeah. all of the stuff I've just mentioned. The arcs, where they're going, why they're going there, who's running them, what their goals are, you know, and, and then to suddenly explain the problems they're encountering and the phenomenon, why that's a problem. To, so it has to explain what should happen, what has happened, and then very quickly also introduce kind of the parameters of the universe that it's left behind. Because there's every chance this is someone's first Mass Effect game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, you know, it's intended to be that, I think. You yeah. know, you don't have to have played the original at all. It, it's not very interested in constantly calling back to them it's it's its own thing and so all of a sudden you've got you know you, you're kind of alongside everything else you, you get hit by a wall of exposition quite quickly mm. and it's probably a bigger burden in terms of exposition than any prior prior not only any prior mass effect game but to be honest almost any other prior um bioware game that i can think of because even the Dragon Age games, which each have a different protagonist, continue a single narrative, more or less. Um, while they have to reintroduce elements or re-explain elements, mm. they often have returning characters that help you kind of like chart <coughs> your course through them. Yeah. Andromeda can't do that. Mm. So it has to introduce an entirely new cast and then have that cast introduce loads of new things and loads of old things. And also try and introduce themselves. 
Mm. And this lends that opening quite a kind of... Uh, and also set the tone for the game, which is going to be about exploration and science. It's not really going to be about fighting. It's not a military. Like, Shepard was a military commander. Um, Ryder, the protagonist of of, um, of uh, Andromeda, does some fighting, but is predominantly presented as kind of like a scientist explorer, which is a very different kind of yeah. take. And so you got to imagine the RPG that all at once, just in terms of its writing, has to introduce all of that stuff and set a tone and it doesn't quite manage it. Mm. And that's a shame. And I think maybe it's just aiming a little bit. It's just, I don't know how you solve that problem. I, I don't, but I mean, there's got to be aspects that you can just kick into the long grass or put into a journal. If you know, I mean, is it all essential information really? No, I think, I think, I think what they've tried to do is integrate it seamlessly in some ways. Mm. But that leads to the awkward TV exposition thing yeah, of characters yeah, sort of explaining who they are on the way to explaining something they'd actually say. Mm. So it's sort of, you know, it's the, well, we need to get to this place because this is related to the thing from earlier, which you already know, but I'm just saying it for no reason. And anyway, <laughs> move on to the next thing. Yeah. And that just doesn't like, it doesn't flow brilliantly straight away. And even as someone who knows his fiction inside out and, and loved the original games, there's a sort of like, oh dear, where are you going with this clunkiness to that intro? Um, also, it mirrors very closely um, the structure of lots of Bioware games, but I think particularly Mass Effect 1. Like, I'm going to keep coming back to Mass Effect 1 because mm-hmm. I don't think you can understand Andromeda without understanding Mass Effect 1. Um, it has a similar thing of throwing you into the action with a kind of introductory sequence and then taking you back out and, and leaving you kind of cold in a big space station to, to walk around and talk to people and pull at the threads of the world and, and discover things and do some pretty rudimentary talky fetchy kind of quests around space station yeah. for a little bit to learn the ropes of that which involves a lot of running around looking at things uh, which is very much like the gap between eden prime and the citadel and mass Effect one where you went and you did the action adventure thing and you learned about what the story was going to be about yeah and then you're given like a two to three hour cooling off period where you just go walk around in big circles and mm. talk to people like it's not quite as big as that citadel sequence was but it sort of segues into similar to Mass Effect 1, a kind of linear series of, you know, tasks that teach you more of the game systems, more of the game's themes, and tell you more of the story at the same time. And that leads us basically bang up to the point where this prohibition I'm talking about anymore takes us. Okay. So you're talking about, like, judging Mass Effect 1 based up on th- up until the point where you finish the Saren investigation of a Spectre. Okay. Right, you're kind of getting mm. into that kind of territory. It's not entirely analogous for that, but it's a similar kind of... There was some intrigue there with that, with Mass Effect 1, though. There was, you know, I think Saren was a, a good villain yeah. at the start there. You, they built him up really, really nicely, you mm. know. Uh, so that gave you the, the kind of a little through line to pull you through that the, the final third of that bit. Mm. I think um, I think Andromeda gets there in some ways, mm. but I think it's but I think also people forget how potentially slow that bit is as yeah, well. Okay. Actually, like mm. that first Citadel section, you can spend ten hours there probably easily, right? Just talking to Hanar and doing fetch quests and learning about the history and beliefs of the Elcor, and <laughs> yeah. you know, if yeah, if you if you go for it and you play as Action Shepherd who gets things done, you can motor through it and it has mm. pace. And Andromeda is similar. But equally, like as in Andromeda, if you decide to just sort of take your time with it, then it's it, it plods, I think. And and there's a you know a sort of a, and also because the game hasn't it does the Bioware thing that they always do, to be honest, of not really playing its hand very early. Like mm. it'll sort of tell you, you know, these games always begin and include 
I'm trying to think of the Bioware game that is the exception to this, actually, because they're almost all like this. The games begin with crisis and then give you breathing space and then set you a task. And then when you've done that thing, they tell you what the game is about. Right. Really, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, you're always sort of like forged in some kind of, your character always kind of comes into being in some kind of like crazy disaster and then goes to a town or place to talk to people about the nature of that disaster mm. for three hours. And then you go to find the magic box of wherever the fuck. And then the, yeah, the map yeah. opens up and that's yeah, when yeah. you, that's when the thing begins. And, and Andromeda has exactly that structure. The most pronounced iteration of that was Inquisition. Mm. Um, and probably the most, the most poorly implemented, I would say. Um, in that it gives you quite an exciting opening and then puts you to the hinterlands with that and just then it kind of obliterates you with noise. Like, uh, signal to noise is terrible in that, in that area because you don't know necessarily where the critical path is. Like where like, you can go to the map at any time and leave. But it's amazing how that's not signposted at all. So you, you know, you end up getting stranded in this area full of just random fetch quests. Mm. That is that really, you, you can drive yourself nuts just staying there. You, you might think it was the most boring game ever if you never actually got out of the hinterlands. Yeah. And to the extent that we wrote, <laughs> we wrote a Phil Savage PC Gamer wrote a public service announcement article telling people to get out of the hinterlands because people were complaining about how boring the game was. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, as soon as you get out of the hinterlands, it's fucking rockets off. Yeah. So, um, Inquisition, I think, will draw a lot of comparisons. Sorry, um, Andromeda will draw a lot of comparisons to Inquisition, mm. and and that's that's warranted. Like it's a you know it is has open world elements. It's in the Frostbite engine. There's you know there are a lot of similarities on that level. Um, but they have solved that problem, and that's one thing that I think it does stand so out. You know that success. where the critical path yes, is. Yes, I think yeah. there are two things that help with that. One is one is just the setting helps okay. because. Travel between places in Inquisition is a bit of an abstract concept. You have a world map with icons, and yeah. the implication is that you're walking between those places. In Andromeda, it's a Mass Effect game. You have a spaceship. Mm. The, the implicit notion that you are there to travel is there from the beginning. So it's less weird. Like It would be weird to have to tell somebody... If you go back to the spaceship, you're allowed to leave. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? It's just implicit, isn't it? It's not, yeah, it's not like you have to press M to go to the map and then yes. click return to camp. You know mm. what I mean? Like it's mm. like, you, you know, you see a lot of cutscenes of that spaceship taking off mm. and going places. And then the other side of it is that, um, it, so Inquisition gives you that linear opening bit, gives you a little adventure in, in its first kind of tiny little open world. Yeah. And then drops you into a huge zone, which you could hypothetically be returning to for the rest of the game to do stuff with almost all of it open. Yeah. And gives you an objective, but <coughs> then doesn't really communicate when you've done that, that you're allowed to leave and go to do spectacular things elsewhere. Mm. Uh, the way Andromeda does it is there's a conceit within the fiction um, that prevents you from traveling outside of certain bounds on planets until certain criteria have been met mm. essentially this isn't hardly this should not be a spoiler but yeah like a big role of your job as pathfinder for the andromeda initiative is making planets habitable and there are things you can do that increase the habitability of planets yeah. and as that happens the zone you're allowed to explore and drive around in expands so when you first get to your first planet which is your first open world zone the amount that's safe for you to walk around is fucking tiny mm. And your first, you know, you are led, you're given minimum secondary objectives. There are a few, but there are very few. Um, and a, a main thread that is clearly about expanding your zone of operation. And the moment where it lets you, and then it, get, it builds to a moment where you do have a little bit of freedom, but even then your objectives are very clear. Hmm. Uh, 
and that you know takes you up to a kind of a key point but you know it's a very limited open world until that key point and i can't tell you what happens after that but what i can say is you know your first encounters it there's, there's i don't think any risk of that hinterlands problem right because you're not you're just not allowed to go off piste until yeah you know the story has moved on to a certain point basically. right um which it means you know and also you know you have a spaceship you are allowed to go like that's fine um so to talk about the kind of the game side of it it's interesting like the way i would explain it is it's it's a spiritual successor to mass effect one uh that ignores almost all of the ways the formula of mass effect changed to mass effect 2 because you know, I, I think a lot of the things, that, a lot of people's reactions to uh, to Andromeda will be interesting in terms of how much people do and don't remember about the history of that series. Like, you know, I mean, one thing is I think people will have complaints, legitimate complaints about the slow start, but I don't know if they will necessarily couch that as another Bioware slow start, or if they will just think of it as a new phenomenon. Whereas for mm-hmm. me, coming to it, it was like, oh, it's almost comforting to know exactly how this works. And that is a criticism, yeah. right? They should have shook up that opening formula by now. Especially because other games have kind of moved on. Yeah, for sure. Especially RPGs. This is, you know, this, this begins in a way that tells you, welcome to another Bioware RPG. Hmm. You know how this works. Um, and that's good and bad. It's nice that they haven't broken it, but it's not great that they haven't fixed it. Yeah. Um, <coughs> then, um, the, um, and the other side of it is that Mass Effect 2, they overhauled what Mass Effect meant. Hmm. They stripped, they ripped out the RPG really and made a very good shooter, which was an interesting decision, probably an appropriate one for the type of story that Shepard was about, you know, really. Yeah, like, sure. um, its missions became these kind of crafted linear combat encounters. Um, and then the rest of the game is basically fetch quests. Hmm. And it's fetch quests, you know, Mass Effect 2, as beloved as it is, is fetch quests in a kind of hub area. And then corridor shooter, often against spectacular backdrops, but that's the kind of game it is. Um, whereas Mass Effect One was fetch quests in an open world. Fetch quests are just the rule, mm. unfortunately, but like mm. it was sort of fetch quests in an open world with a slightly jankier RPG shooter hybrid combat system designed to work in lots of different environments. Yeah, and uh, that's Andromeda. Like Andromeda is is an RPG with shooter elements, not a shooter with RPG elements. Um, at first, particularly if what you're remembering is Mass Effect Two and Three. Um, it's combat can feel a bit floaty and kind of less connected to the environment. Like you don't slam into cover like a Gears of War character and like, you know, yeah. guns don't have the same kind of like, they feel pretty good, but they don't have the same kind of punch to them. And enemies don't like lock to cover quite as fluidly or whatever. Mm. And those systems are designed to support a much more three-dimensional area. Okay. You know, you can jump, enemies can jump climb there's like a lot more kind of mm. space for combat to take place in and similarly your um interactions in it are more about your gear and your powers and what you're kind of bringing to bear than it is about the kind of like gunplay nitty-gritty of 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 the other most recent more, the more recent mass effect games like the moment where it started to to click for me early on was when I realized that like I'm playing as a biotic character this time around because my shepherd was not a biotic and I just mm. thought I'd you know go and do something different and I realized that like the shooting's fine but the shooting is almost like punctuation between using my biotic powers to do interesting things 
so there's loads of them now there's loads of new ones yeah. and they have their all sort of things of like pulling people and then pushing them to combo into like a biotic ex- like explosion that rips into pieces and things like that and that mm. looks really good and things like pull have more applications when it's not just like a flat plane with waist high cover and people behind cover where you can sort of pull people and then throw them off ledges you don't have like granular control over them but you know yeah punting people off stuff is a pretty big part of winning combat but there's like a, a cool power that i like um a lot called backlash which you hold down the button for to like propel like a biotic shield in front of you and it looks sort of cool and then it redirects any projectiles that hit you from that direction at where your cursor is so you can sort of it's a defensive power but you can against different enemies time it differently to like repel damage in particular ways hmm. um and the fact that you can jump uh with a jetpack is um it is it's not like hovering jetpack though that's a thing it's a booster basically yeah um could also be comboed into like um sideways forward and backwards quick dashes that cover like 20 feet you're much faster mm. than you ever were in, in the older mass effect games because the distances that fights can cover are much bigger um so like if an enemy closes in on you you can just sort of like rocket yourself backwards 20 feet or like jump and then rocket mm. and so you have like quite interesting you can do like a really tall jump and then jet sideways while firing down like it's, it feels very very different yeah like both faster as a shooter but also much more about like jump use a power you know crouch behind cover recharge reload do something else mm. and then on top of that you um this is all stuff that you get access to prior to the um shit kicking off at the point where i can't talk about but um you have a crafting system which is linked to research which is all done with a scanner and you can scan things and get research and make stuff and gather materials it's a lot like there's a certain degree of open world hoovering up the things yeah that was that was really boring in all games it is really boring in all games it's <laughs> like you know i'm um uh, it's yeah it's not a great it's not a great thing what it does do in, in andromeda that is there must be a better way of giving these options to players but yeah. one of the interesting things is you have access to mods that you can implement it's the same as any other crafting system ever you can implement modifications when you're making new weapons and armor and things but unlike a lot of crafting systems, they have quite meaningful impacts on what the guns actually do. Okay. So you can fundamentally change how a gun fires, like what it what it fires and how you fire it, and what like that'll depend on what kind of gun you put it in. You know, and a really basic example is, you know, you can make a rifle that shoots electricity, or you can make boots that mean if you jump and do a melee strike you electrocute people in a radius around you and you can kind of build out in that way yeah um, that's very i guess that's where the rpg comes in that yeah. kind of gear modification stuff yeah yeah it feels um it covers some of the same bases as mass effect one did with the sort of custom ammo types and yeah, stuff yeah. like that where yeah. you swap things around mm. a lot um and there's a lot to to dig into there and it might be of no interest to people who just want to explore the story but there is a there is a new game there i think that's the thing that struck me like it's not um and again, that intro you know, just lets you dip your toes into 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 this stuff. It's sort of there, waiting for you, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting. It's not. Um, it's not. I think what I would say is it's not Mass Effect two or three picked up and dropped into an open world. It's a new take on that formula. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, 
a ground up rebuilding of of Mass Effect systems and combat system and enemy design and, and all that stuff. Um. So yeah. So um. <coughs> it'll be it'll be interesting to see what the the reaction is like because I think um. I think some disappointment with it going to get this kind of, that kind of open world, which is 90% about fetching things and yeah. gathering resources is going to disappoint a little bit, particularly early in those first couple of hours when mm. um, you first kind of encounter it and you realize, okay, well, this is what Mass Effect is now. Um, but I think it's still possible to enjoy just sort of sinking their time into that into a world that looks that good and has characters that do kind of open up and reveal like that was ultimately the fun of inquisition yeah it was even like i almost 100 percented that game even though the open world stuff mm. is about as basic as you can get and still be a game in terms of go to place press use on rock yeah you do it for the the story and the sense of place and the characters that you're accompanied with. Yeah. And this is, you know, those first hours still introduce you to a whole bunch of companions really quickly and mm. get you going really fast with a new crew and, and the rest of it. Yeah. I increasingly think that companions are the point of Bioware games. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and that they've never been amazing sort of, you know, moment to moment shooters or tactical games. Um, except maybe Baldur's Gate 2 way, way, way back. But I think uh, I think Mass Effect Three is legitimately good shooter. Okay, that's cool. I mean, we played uh, a lot of the co-op. Yeah, right? I mean, Mass Effect Three was actually really, really, really fun. I think it, there was it was very high high lethality combat and it was really satisfying with a sniper rifle or a shotgun to just mm. pop guys in that game. Um, lots of uh, great kind of Dector gears for, but they realised it really nicely. Um, so I did I did enjoy that. That was actually one, possibly one of the better ones. Like I really hated uh, combat in um, Dragon Age Inquisition. Uh, Dragon Age 2 is just kind of power fest. Like you don't play this. I've never played those games for the, for that. Mm. Played it for the relationships with the characters they design around you and how they change and how, you know, their stories progress. Yeah. Like, and it's that stuff that I feel like, like I want to leave for people to, yeah, definitely. to discover yeah. a little bit. But is it, have you enjoyed that? You know, I have. It's so I think one of the things is that it, I think at this point with the universe that well established, one of the things about dropping players into a completely new set of shoes in the same, not even the same place, in a very different place in the same universe, is that a lot of things are going to feel like variations on a theme. Yeah. Like, it's it's caught in a weird place, particularly in those opening hours when it's introducing you to the Andromeda Initiative and everything else, where it's throwing loads of new characters, like millions of new characters. It expects you to invest in a lot of them pretty quickly, which is always a bit of a crapshoot. I always advocate to meet the game halfway, hmm. like bear it out don't sort of scoff at it and switch it off just because it's asked you to care about someone you've only just met like right. go with it for a bit and see mm. how you feel um but you know it throws a, a million new characters at you but it also throws you know familiar archetypes at you because you're surrounded by you know races and sort of types of people that you've encountered before in, in mass the original games so there's a sort of strange reconciliation of like everyone's new, but I'm kind of looking for Garrus, not right. actual Garrus, but like yeah, the, where, yeah, where's my kind of I know what you mean yeah, 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 yeah. and it'll it'll get you there basically. Okay, um, I think if to give advice to people who are starting out, one thing is um, don't be put off by the boring first male companion. Amazingly, 
they have done this for the fourth so many time. Times. <laughs> like the fourth time in the Mass Effect series. Mm. Fifth time if you include Kate, uh, Karth from Knights of the Republic. Right. Like, I don't know why they can't stop doing this. It's intentional, it must be. They must, like, and those characters always get a little bit better mm. after a while. <laughs> okay. Right? Like, can't talk about Mass Effect Andromeda, but like, Caden and James Vega and Jacob, uh, mm. maybe not Jacob, he's boring, but like, mm. uh, even Jacob has his moments, like, like, all of them get like a moment, even if they start off really lame. Yeah. Um, but for some reason, your first mission, particularly, which is always going to be the crisis that forges your character, will always take place in the company of the most boring man. The most boring man. Yeah. And if there's a lesson to any of these games, it's probably don't settle for the first man you meet. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Like, um, and, uh, Andromeda, you know, to its credit, uh, does the Mass Effect 1 thing again, unlike the other Mass Effect games, of giving you loads of companions straight away. Right. Uh, when I say loads, I mean a lot. Like relative, it doesn't drip feed them and yeah. its plot isn't about finding them, which is what Mass Effect 2 was. Um, Mass Effect 2 had a billion companions and made some of them optional. Hmm. Mass, this is back in the Mass Effect 1 mold of like fewer, but plot critical. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, you'll introduce you to a bunch of them quite quickly by the time, you know, we get to the point that we have to stop talking about the game. And so, um, it, you very quickly gain the option to not hang out with that man to anymore. never hang out with Liam again. <laughs> oh, no. Um, Oh dear. I mean, it but they have done that. But like, I feel like I feel like people are going to play it and go, "Fuck's sake, this guy!" And yeah. then, and you're probably right to think that at the beginning. Mm. And like, they they are they are always trying to make them different, and I don't know why it <laughs> never works. I don't know. Maybe maybe they're just deliberately boring because you're supposed to be the main character and you're still mm. establishing yourself. Uh, you're still finding out who Shepard or Ryder is, and that they can't have someone outshining the main character in that, those sections. Yeah, I suppose that's it. They always they always pair you with someone at the beginning who is, like, a rookie like you. Mm. But neutral and, and more boring than yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, it's it's a weird... Maybe decision. if you met the super charismatic space pirate uh, straight away, you'd, you'd prob- you might think, why can't I be that guy? <laughs> Instead of yeah. being happy to be your guy. So you Andromeda I mean? does something interesting with that, which is that, um, again, it's a lot... So, you know, um, Mass Effect 1 started with you being more or less someone else's companion. You <laughs> yeah, are, that's right. You are David Anderson's second in command. Mm. And you are um, kind of seconded to that spectre, um, Nihilus. I think it's Nihilus. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good opening. I really like that. So yeah. Starts the game. Yeah. So, you know, you immediately have like two space dads. Mm. And, you know, that that's how that game begins. Um, uh, Andromeda is very, very similar. Okay. Like in, in not, you are not, it's not Mass Effect 2 or 3 where Shepard is Shepard right at the beginning of the game. Yeah, really established. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're even less established maybe than Shepard is at the beginning of Mass Effect 1. Like you begin Mass Effect Andromeda as like, not a nobody, mm. but like not, probably not even in the top three most important people on the mission mm. uh, at any given time, uh, which is a nice place to start. And, it, and actually... I think it, um, I've seen, you know, there, there, I think there are reasons, there are some, there's some dialogue that really, really doesn't stick the landing in the opening and there's a lot of heavy handed exposition <laughs> and some, you know, pretty sort of stodgy stuff. But I think a lot of the key character moments in the intro actually does land. Okay. Um, and it, it handles the transition to you being the protagonist 
um pretty well i think like in terms of why things happen and what happens and it's you know probably not exactly what you're expecting and that's cool and like you know and it a bit like mass Effect one it kind of does that in an interesting way i'd argue more interesting than mass Effect one um and that's um sort of nice to see but you will do all of this accompanied by a fundamentally quite boring dude hmm. and a, a far more interesting woman who will go on to <laughs> who will probably stay in your squad for a while <laughs> right yeah <laughs> even as poor old liam gets to live in the oh, basement oh, liam. for the rest of the game what's my job stay on the ship liam yeah exactly <laughs> you live there now yeah um I'm trying to think if there's anything else worth saying about it before we move on because i mean i'll probably talk about it again on a future pod because there's there's more to say obviously good. I, I feel like i've had my expectations buffered a bit so yeah. that i can kind of allow myself to enjoy it over a period of time so I I, think... i've managed to avoid um a lot of the trailers and which have been i've gathered gotten quite spoilery yeah don't watch the trailers like so <laughs> right. weirdly um i can't talk about things that are in the trailers <laughs> Whoa. um because they are after the embargo point right so like that's a weird situation button. to be in. Yeah. But so, nonetheless, yeah. right? I can't comment about whether or not they're in the game, but don't watch them. So you'll never know. Yeah. Like, yeah. So having, having not watched those going in with slightly tempered expectations, I feel like I'm going to probably take it at, you know, for what it is. I think temper your expectations, expect a Bioware game hmm. and like, and expect, you know, um, like I find that these games are like a bath, like a hot bath. Hmm. Like, you need to get, like, when you're a kind of, they're like a low intensity form of sort of pleasurable wandering. Wallowing. Wallowing, right? You just sort of like, you just do stuff in them and characters that you come to like say funny things. Hmm. And I don't think that's the highest level of artistry that games can aspire to. No, I don't even think it's the level that I would pitch Mass Effect at. I mean, I I always associate Mass Effect with quite, quite fast clips super exciting space adventure with you know things coming yeah. out of warp and exploding and you know lots of kind of weird there are there stuff. are cool things yeah there are cool it's not all wallowing yeah but your primary means of interaction with it is through a kind of wallowy exploration and that's not new K- kotor is like that yeah that's like Knights of the republic is a lot like that mm. and, and it's part of a deep history of you know the of wallowing of, of wallowing about yeah. And, and exploring and, and things like that. So I, I, um, I'm not averse to a good wallow. I'm playing Numenera still, and that's that's all. That's mega wallow. It is mega wallow. Mega so that thing I said when we were discussing Numenera in the pod a couple of weeks ago mm. um, about how I needed, I really wanted, uh, a less thinky, progressive space adventure to go on. It's that, yeah. right? Like if you want to really be tested in your writing, mm. oh sorry, in your in your reading, and and you know to be made to consider pretty you know well thought through sci-fi ideas go play torment mm. um the first 10 hours of andromeda are not that they are the pilot episode of a new season of star trek in which you wallow and then shoot a robot maybe yeah every now and then yeah in exactly. the desert yeah hmm. um going to be all right everybody i think yeah i think i think i think measured i think tempered expectations are the the way to go in um but also just you know open mind you know already if you like this kind of story and this kind of world yeah and, you know try and um meet the game halfway while it does its 
heavy lifting of the narrative as it hoists it onto its back yeah. so that it and runs with it. Yeah, so that it can finally pick up some pace and, and start mm. doing things. It will give you a nice moment where you get a nice galaxy map. Yeah. I've seen some complaints about the galaxy map, actually, and I can't talk about this because it is in that section of the game. Mm. Um, I feel like the polarizing thing for my Sweat Andromeda, and probably the last thing I say about in this pod, will be what kind of galaxy map person you are. <laughs> yeah. So, this is maybe the, the purest example of the kind of the happy Mass Effect wallow. Mm. But, it's probably got the best galaxy map of the four games. And the reason for that is it's a synergy of Mass Effect 1 and 2 that cuts out most of the bullshit from both of them. Mm. So Mass Effect 2 is the one where you had to kind of massage each sphere with a cursor to find bits where it would sort of wobble and you could mine it for beryllium yeah. forever. I did that so far too much. Yeah. I got a bit addicted to that. Yeah, it was addictive, but it was probably ultimately a negative experience. But yes, I'd agree. Um, Mass Effect 1 had the big sprawling map with lots of descriptions of planets mm. um, that would show up as little pictures. And then every other system would have like a hidden thing in it, which would just show up as a temporary glimmer. And the best way to find that was to pixel scan with the cursor mm. on asteroid belts to see if anything, to find another bit of Matriarch Dilanaga's writing floating in space. <laughs> Um, and then Mass Effect 3 was sort of mostly just a navigation tool with some, with some scanning, um, and a very silly Reaper Cops, yeah. uh, mini game. It's like a 1980s arcade game. Yeah. Where you're running away from little pictures of Reapers. So the, the way in which, um, one of the ways in which Andromeda is most keenly felt, cause I mean, one thing I haven't said is the production values have shot up, right? Mm. Like the animations are a bit stiff, uh, cause Inquisition was similar, uh, but animations were always a bit stiff in Mass Effect. Like it's not like the originals look like movies, yeah. and this one looks a bit stiff. It's you know it's in a in a tradition. Um, but one of the places where that extra investment is most felt is weirdly in the galaxy map, which now feels like it's it's one of the only areas where music from the original games comes back. Yeah, oh, cool. Because mm. and it's in the background. Like, there's a new score, but it has the main kind of like the and like um <laughs> that's perfect. That's a new intro. Yeah, exactly. Um, and um, the like. The, when you are like, um, when you're in it, it's, it's obviously been, it's been made by people who are like, you know what people fucking love about this game? Mm. The map. Like, this is the game they made after the map had gained some sort of celebrity status. <laughs> or like, think pieces were written the about map. how we all miss Mass it's, Effect it's, map. He's a companion now. Yeah. The map yeah. is a companion. You can't fuck the map. I've tried. Oh, well. Um, sad times. Yeah. Um, but like, now it is a, like a huge display that stretches out across the bridge of the ship, uh, like a panoramic thing. And you actually explore the map in first person, which is kind of weird, but it's supposed to represent you're looking at it through Ryder's eyes. And mm. you, the kind of, you have like the, the computer will move around to show you different perspectives on things. So you'll have like the top down view of the system, but it's not just like a picture of a space system anymore or like a, you know, a render you only see from one angle. It's now like a fully 3D rendered space system with the proportions adjusted for cinematic hmm. radness yeah but like it's all kind of like you know beautifully lit and um the helios sector which is the part of andromeda the game takes place in has a huge black hole at the center of it which is visible from almost every system and no it lo- lo- lurks on the horizon yeah. and that kind of thing um and it's when you um uh, click on a planet you actually fly there which involves like this kind of 
you know, sort of light hyperspace sequence, which is more intense if you're going between systems, mm. um, as the Tempest kind of arcs towards the next the next planet and like looms over its horizon. And you know the uh, the Mass Effect logo is like that horizon line. Yeah, it manages to find a way to frame that with almost every planet you go to. So it's just like <laughs> look how fucking gorgeous and lens flaring mm. everything is. Nice. Um, and then then you can do your bit of scanning, and and so there's a sort of a sense of like flying from place to place, and that also applies to going to asteroids and derelict starships and whatever you might find in the in the cosmos and um and one of the nice things about that is uh the tempest has loads of windows it's not like normandy both normandies were like submarines they were you know stealth military vessels yeah the tempest is an exploration ship and so it has several sets of huge bay windows and because those environments are being rendered a pretty high decent scale um when you are parked outside a planet or outside any anywhere you go in any of these systems even just an asteroid if you walk away from the galaxy map and go somewhere else in the ship you can look out over that specific part of space from that specific angle mm. and see the rest of the system that's and really cool it, you know the original mass Effect games just had a like a starfield skybox hovering around the normandy unless you're in specific places yeah and this feels like a real nice mm. generation leap above that um it's such a small thing such a tiny thing really it has no bearing on how good the game is it's just that little feel of it like yeah yeah which is really important it is really important to yeah me, but you know. and it's all about feel and so um but you know i've seen the complaint already from people's impressions about the, the opening hours of the game that the, the that the map and the scanning is is appalling because there are so many sort of there's so many weights built into it you're talking about weights of a couple of seconds at a time mm. but you have to watch that and you know you have to watch the tempest fly to the next place before you get there you have to you know wait the couple of seconds it takes for the computer to kick in and give you the planet view and things like that. And I've quite enjoyed that because I like, I've always liked the experience of kind of wallowing in the map and listening to the music and feeling like I'm in space and yeah. marveling at the scale of things and reading the little planet descriptions for the little nuggets of flavor mm. text and things like that. If you see the galaxy map, however, and this is what I mean by like the whole, whether or not you will loathe this game or like it is predicated on whether or not you like the galaxy map or not. If you see the galaxy map as a needly, needlessly obfuscatory menu that you shake down for all of the resources in a system and all of the interaction points in a system, mm. and then the landing pad, and you would rather just have a list of things to click on that loaded instantly and filtered through everything, then I think you'll find it very frustrating because, you know, the game kind of wants you to glide and wallow in space. Glide and wallow. And it, that's, you know, I like it. I can respect the position that says, cut to the bit where something exits hyperspace and, or explodes but hmm. there's a part of me that will always think of mass effect as the game i played over dozens of hours of just sat kind of happily listening to boom, 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 hmm. while reading about a weird crater on a planet that would never otherwise feature in the game you know what i mean and there are two there are two mass effects there i think yeah interesting and it's it's very much the other mass effect it's the it's the boom 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 Mass Effect, not the Mass Effect, and that is my totally excellent embargo respecting summary of the first ten hours of Mass Effect. Nicely done. The first ten hours of Mass Effect, and no further. Join us next week when I could talk about the other hundred hours, the other twenty-five hours of my life this week. A wild pip appears, and Pip asks. Is it time for questions? Yes. Oh, thank goodness. Otherwise, I was going to leave again. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, Pip. Thanks. 
Lives have been saved. Destiny's altered. All while you two were talking about Mass Effect Andromeda. Just wobbling on. <laughs> wobbling on. Don't know what I mean by that. No, Not you're gonna just lie. pouring your wine. Pouring my wine. Do we have questions? We do, yes. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, I, I wasn't I wasn't prevaricating on purpose. I promise. <laughs> hmm. Henry writes, Dear Question Time. In pod 176, you mentioned audio cues Destiny gave for enemies spawning. It's worth noting that Left 4 Dead and Left 4 Dead 2 both did this as well, playing a unique piano or violin theme to let you know which special infected had spawned. This worked even in versus mode, so that you could plan ahead against the other team. Jittery light piano taps indicating a jockey, while a few deep bassful piano notes told you a boomer was now lurking. No question, but thought it was worth respecting. You were spot on with the pudding players who were good at picking it up into a leadership role. Tara Henry. A good observation. Yeah, and a reminder that Left 4 Dead is fucking awesome. Yep. My mm. favourite game. I love design like that. Yeah, it's great. Something that was nice earlier, before I started to feel so sick I wanted to lie down, um, was I was playing on the Vive, the broken, janky Vive. But something that was really nice was uh, I was playing Delilah's Gift, which uh, you reach into a sort of glowing golden orb to fish out pages from a book um, that then plays out around you, kind of almost like you're inside a, you know, like a planetarium or something and it's being projected around you. Um, But something that was really nice was um, it just, as you put your hand or your, you know, touch controller representing your hand into the, the golden orb to pull out the pages, you get a tiny bit of haptic feedback. And so what I was doing was I'd be staring in one direction to sort of see the next page, but I'd sort of feel out behind me mm. for like the moment when I got the little, you know, the little buzz of the feedback mm. to tell me that I was reaching in the right place and then would just sort of, you know, do the the motion that lets you pull the page out and just sort of without even turning around and that was just a neat nice motion to be able to do so just while it was in my head i thought i would Mm. point Mm. out another bit of of cueing someone in for an action yeah i love anything you can intuit yeah have your intuition respected that's especially with that left dead thing because it, it just sort of goes into subconscious almost it's just like just under what you're thinking about consciously you know you just get a feeling that Something mm. is there now, uh, and then through association, it becomes knowledge. Isn't it? It's more mm. than a feeling in some ways. <laughs> if if more than a feeling plays during your Left for Dead campaign, <laughs> who knows what's going to happen? Very special infected the, indeed. Uh, the best tank. <laughs> is it more than a feeling, or is it exactly a feeling? I think I think music is more than a feeling. More than a feeling. <laughs> Something when I feel your heart ceilings. beating. Oh, no. yeah. Right, <laughs> I don't know the lyrics. Another question successfully answered on the Crate and Crowbar. <laughs> it wasn't even a question, uh, and true. we answered the hell out of it. Is it Marianne that walks away in that song? I can't remember. I always thought it was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, I'm not really the person. Because that, I mean, <laughs> if, if, if more than the feeling place indicates that Marianne has despawned rather than ah, arrived. Yeah, true, true. Um, <laughs> Would she be one of your companions so that you would be in sort of deep shit if she'd left? No, it, it, she's like the uh, UFO that flies across the top of the screen in Space Evaders. It means you've missed your window. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's a mod. Someone should just make that mod. God. Um, or not. It's up to you. 
don't. People I'm talking to. <laughs> uh, Mads writes, Dear Cask and Parrot, I'm a pirate. Welcome. For, for as long as I can remember, <laughs> I don't know why I have to pause For as long as I can remember, I've been pirating games. The strange thing is that other than this somewhat sad crime, I'm an extremely honest and lawful guy. I, I keep trying to motivate myself to stop pirating, but nothing seems to stick. Downloading them without paying is simply too easy. Do you have any words that might help me save my soul from this tricky situation? Uh, love the podcast, digging the relaxed, mature and down-to-earth vibe, mature-ish. Thanks for redeeming everybody. Mads. He sent a follow-up email saying, good luck with my Norwegian surname, which is why I've opted simply <laughs> not to try. Sneaky. <laughs> if you want that kind of value, you got to pay. <laughs> and by all accounts... That's not your thing. Um, so this is interesting. <laughs> like, um, Fierce burn. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is interesting because I don't think anyone's ever question, sent us a question about piracy before. It's, yeah, it's interesting actually. We haven't actually had a, ta- a chance to talk about it. And it's something definitely we're talking about quite openly because mm. it's so, so many people do it. Yeah. And th- there is definitely a, an element of it that just doesn't feel like stealing stuff. And this goes for torrenting TV and movies as well in that it's just so poorly enforced as a crime it basically isn't a crime mm. it's funny like i found that piracy for me went away the moment things became available in mm. two ways both in terms of actual just the ability to buy, find something in a shop and the second being disposable income yeah as soon as the availability was there it was i didn't i don't didn't want to contend i mean, i would honestly cop to have pirated a whole bunch when i was a teenager because mm. I, I, I would i would defy you to find the teenager into pc games in the mid noughties that didn't honestly yeah it was, it was music for me i mean yeah music uh, as well like god, I, god knows yeah yeah like, i mean 10 pounds for an album just didn't have that so you know in the old days you'd just copy it on a onto a tape cassette from your mate's collection or you know yeah burn a cd or and then you start downloading mp3s oh, granddad it's, it's an extension of the uh I used to trade mini discs <laughs> i used to yeah Throw vinyls, yeah, exactly. To my friends, I used to honk albums at my friends, <laughs> yeah, and right. they would engrave They'd them record it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's it's a continuation of the same thing, but I, it's never been so easy. And so just, and the difference now is that I think there is always an element of just person to person sharing, just um, just actually just giving each other stuff like mixtapes and um, this and the other. Whereas now it's just completely anonymous, and there's just a vast information layer from which you pull the entertainment you want mm. and it's so accessible it's so easy and uh there's no wonder that it's absolutely you know everyone's doing it yeah i I'm think not. no i, I'm not, I'm I don't not anymore i don't really either like <laughs> no I, this is the thing this question made me wonder is like trying to explain to this guy why you shouldn't pirate things is is kind of dead straightforward really it's just mm. that like things don't get made if they're not paid for and if you don't pay people ultimately they lose out um you know, it's like reverse voting. You might feel like your personal contribution makes no difference, but it's still worth doing. Piracy mm. is the opposite. You might feel like you doing it makes no difference, but it's still worth not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, I'm the same as you, Chris. Like, as soon as I like had work and a job, etc., from you know, as you've seen, to 18 onwards, it, like I started buying things, and um, you know, especially when they were very available and easy to buy. Mm. Uh, and then I think like the the dilemma came up when there was stuff that people could just watch in America that was. All you have to do is switch your VPN over and you can watch it if you want. Is that yeah, piracy? Yeah. Is that not piracy? And, and, and just the, 
the the fact that in you know this, uh, this globalized connected world we have that you know arbitrarily one region can't watch a thing that another region can watch is a completely ar- yeah. arbitrary situation that's been created by companies that want to slice off different places and charge different amounts or and and, and you know consumers are reaching around that and maybe such companies will be faster to you know meet yeah i think that, i think i think where it still exists in, in a widespread way particularly tv like mm. game of thrones being yeah, the best example precisely. of like the most yeah. widely pirated thing ever i think mm. um it's because really shit distribution and that doesn't excuse the piracy no but in a way the piracy can be accounted for by saying well if you're going to put all this money into marketing this thing and make something people are really excited about and then not let them buy it they'll just get it they will just go find it yeah. like and that's you know i think but you know does that mean that get you know getting something for free that you shouldn't have for free is right still no, no. but i mean it's it should be just a giant um it is a giant honking you know uh indication to companies that you know here is a gigantic market ah here it is yeah. and obviously if it was easy for them to just simply sell it to us or put it onto british tv then they would have just done it by now so mm. I mean, i'm sure it's incredibly complicated uh distribution law across various territories but still i mean consumers don't care about that <laughs> they just they'll just get it i think um things practical things that have stopped me from pirating games specifically as an adult and it's probably been more than 10 years since i pirated a game hmm. easily more than that actually i just realized how old i am <laughs> um is um like one is that, you know, what when you don't have to do that, the um the the amount of dodgy software required is very off putting. Like you're you know exposing yourself to a lot of potential mm. jank in terms of dodgy peer to peer sharing software and dodgy files and viruses and, and shit like that. There's also the hassle element of whatever cracks you need to get things working uh, to bypass DRM and, mm. and that kind of thing nowadays, which is, I don't know, I'm quite lazy and it's successfully put me off of pirating <laughs> yeah. anything. I'm, I'm fully sure it's possible to bypass all this stuff, but I can't be asked. I can't remember ever, ever pirating a game. I must have. Um, but no, I don't think I have actually. But because of those reasons, probably that mm. it was just, and also, you know, I, I personally got on very happy with demos back in the day mm. like demos that i would just milk dry for content and then I, Oof, Jesus. <laughs> Tom. Uh, sorry uh, <laughs> I, I apologize to all the demos that i've ever encountered in my past um yeah i don't know if we've answered that already dealt with it but it is, yeah. a, it is a crime and it does hurt content creators it does massively uh it's a huge blight on the industry <laughs> so i mean does that dissuade you yeah <laughs> probably should if you love something pay for it unless it's a person <laughs> and that's my golden rule. <laughs> um, <laughs> Rahul writes, Hello, bagels and bread knives. Recently, I finished the Turing test, the ending of which fell flat for me because instead of allowing the interactive scripted finale story sequence to play out, I went ahead and cut it short by taking action that could have waited until the characters had said their piece. Not sure why I rushed into it, but the action was available, so I took the action. And thus the end sequence rolled at an odd pacing. Similarly, in games like Deus Ex Mankind Divided, I whiz around the map, jumping into everything and punching walls without care. This doesn't ruin my enjoyment, but it does ruin the tone. This is in contrast to a game like Inside, which worked spectacularly well for me at maintaining its tone from start to finish. I guess because my available actions were limited, so I had less space to destroy the tone with nonsense antics. 
I find this kind of tone-destroying behavior works better in some games than others. I'm happy to spin Geralt in circles and then move on to slaying a tree or something because the overall tone is pretty batshit. Do you ever ruin the pacing or tones for yourself by being too aware or, or experimental with game mechanics? And do you know of any games that maintain their tone well without restricting your freedom too much? Or the opposite, where a serious game is too easy to break the tone or pacing? Rahul. Um, this is a, an eloquent way of asking ludonarrative dissonance. Drink. Shit. Meanwhile, meanwhile. Anyway, yes. So, um, I feel like we've 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 covered some aspects of this before because mm. we're very different people in this regard. Like, I'm a cannot not role play in any game ever. Mm. So I almost never break the tone for myself because I will, as we were just saying, what Mass Effect meet every game halfway yeah. to the point where I already kind of like live in its house and I'm wearing its clothes before it's even really earned any kind of investment from me. That made it sound weird. I like the games that give you the freedom to break the kind of tone of the game. Mm. I mean, if it, if inside it had a fart button, you know, that would have allowed me to enjoy that. But people who wanted to preserve their experience, they had the choice not to use the fart button in inside that doesn't exist. <laughs> Don't know why I use that. So you think all games should have a fart button? I just, it'd be an interesting social experiment, wouldn't it? How many people would use it? For how long and when and, and what mm. conditions and, and you know would would a world be so well established that you wouldn't press the fart button for fear of breaking its kind of you know spell over you? <laughs> That's actually a really good idea because it'd be interesting to see how people would complain that the tone of the game for them was ruined by a fart button they didn't have to press. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like if which is drop- the same as all these things. It's like they- I remember like telling the story about jumping all over tables in Skyrim and kicking cutlery everywhere and uh plates everywhere and the game remembers where all that stuff goes so when i just go back to places i'd been and there's just this way of just wrecked places that i couldn't you know take seriously because there was just fruit everywhere uh, and i did that it wasn't the game's fault that i ruined it for myself <laughs> so maybe the fart button is is what is what we need to <laughs> that's do. what they need that's you know we talk a lot about how bioware can shake up their formula or what they need to fix well, that they've been right, doing forever yeah. just add a fart fart interrupt yeah. To every, and just, every just, conversation and, and just kind of, and gather the data, Bioware, gather the data on how many people use it and, you know, and, you know, get the feedback on how many people use it. Do you feel it. like you would prompt people when it was possible for them to fart or give them a fart button that always works? No, I think it's just a passive, always there option. Right. And just. Yeah, that's the only way it works, really. Yeah, yeah, it can't exactly. be like, press the button now to fart or you're never going to get a chance to pe- fart again. People will game it. Because uh, people if, will fart. Yeah. And if you incentivize people, they'll do it. If you give them the option at a key moment, they'll want to do it. Just see what happens <laughs> so it's got to be just an omnipresent just on ongoing this is you know it'd be it's, amazing it's freedom of choice that's what matters yeah god that, what, what a rug pull that would be though to use the the interrupt system the traditional mass effect interrupt system for that where it flashes up a button to let you know that if you press right mouse button now something will happen but it doesn't <laughs> tell you what <laughs> <laughs> it's just so the random mode it's just anything <laughs> just awesome. rider lets one rip. <laughs> There was someone, uh, uh, apparently, we, like, we had a discussion about the D&D uh, morality alignments that we totally butchered because none of us re- seemed to yeah, understand we it. We were making it to be a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't know what, uh, it seems like some sort of chaotic variant there where you just take <laughs> the random option in any conversation and see what happens. That'd be good. But, you know, it could, it could, <laughs> just, it could wreck the... For some reason, I ended up at lawful tutral. Lawful tutral, <laughs> nice. Yeah. There you go. Pip, you, Pip you often, like, from watching you play, like, open-ended games and things, 
Yes. There's a lot of chaos. Oh, yes. Do you find that the tone of the game is lost at all for you? Because you, you don't go in there trying to break things. I think it's not that the tone of the game is lost, but the scope of the game is lost. Because I can't play Dishonored 2, for example, the way that the developers clearly meant it to when it's mm. sort of working at its best. And so I end up, you know, like, obviously I wouldn't review it because I can't play it the way that it needs to be reviewed. But, you know, so Tom Francis's review would be, oh, it's a fascinating game with all these systems you can exploit, blah, blah, blah. And mine would be, well, it's a game about dragging a series of men back to the same room until it ends, you know, <laughs> um, and accidentally falling into kitchens. <laughs> So, like... <laughs> Sounds like being 23, if you ask me. I can't quite remember what I said, so that, that's a bit <laughs> lost. Um, anyway, <laughs> so I I don't know, like, it, but f for me, that's not... I, I don't know, like, I haven't... It's not to do with the game tone so much as, like, just I know that there's a whole bunch of it that I'll just never see and I can't access. Through mm. sheer incompetence. Right. But mm. I don't know, in terms of the um the the basic question, like uh I don't remember what it was. <laughs> <laughs> it was um well there were three. Do you ever ruin the pacing or tone of your oh, of that, games for yeah, yourselves? Uh which is the kind of thing we've answered. Yeah. The next part of this is do you know of any games that maintain their tone well without restricting your freedom or the opposite where a serious game is too easy to break? Um, I don't know. I think I just sort of fall into that other mindset as well. For example, I am playing a game, therefore this is a character that will do squat thrusts in the middle of a conversation with someone else just because that is what a video game character controlled by me will do when I'm hmm. bored of standing still you know like i'm i'm going to dick around because you've given me interaction then you've suddenly taken it away my fingers are bored mm. and i will press whichever buttons are like something happen. on the control pad or on you know like i'll just press the arrow keys over and over and over until i can finally move and i probably won't be paying attention to what you're saying to me and sure that might spoil things but that's your fault for taking away my ability to move i think maybe in terms of a game that it's why you and i can't play together yeah ever i know <laughs> um in terms of games that get the like um, pacing, like, I, I, like, give you a bit of freedom, but don't break their pacing or tone. Like, adventure games, gen, like, Life is Strange would be the example I would use as a game that gives you a decent amount of freedom to wander around. Not a lot of freedom. It cuts off certain key freedoms in order to, you know, you can't jump or crouch or whatever. Um, but you, it's kind of hard in that game to really bust up the tone too much. You can't even really run, you know? It's not a game about running. It's a game about walking and talking and having feelings. Yeah, you can do things that are sort of not in canon for you, mm. I, I think. Like, there's a couple of choices that, for me, sort of stick out as things that I wouldn't necessarily have done if I'd been role-playing consistently as Max, 
I think. Mm. Um, That's within the parameters of the game still, right? You're not talking about... No, You weren't, no, like, exactly. walking around between conversations doing squats. No, um, but that's because the game wrestles that control away from you, you know? You don't get to mm. move around if you are in conversation mm. with someone and you don't get to... And I I don't know, the game has a lot of control. I don't think it really gives you much freedom, you know? No, that's true. At all. I love games that do give you that. I mean, I was playing uh, the Pathologic demo uh, this week, which is called Marble Something. Link in the show notes, probably. Um, find out. You'll find out. <laughs> that's a remake of an old, very obscure, strange game about uh, a town falling to a disease, uh, which is being remade. Is it that obscure? Like, everyone I seem to know in games journalism works. Uh, you, you because you were yes. shotgun. <laughs> that's so true. Uh, and I know Quinn's, <laughs> so... Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's got, it's cult, basically, yeah, and almost unplayable, frankly. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, mm. yeah, no, now I see. Sounds uh, like rock, paper, shotgun. <laughs> uh, but it's been so remade, it's, which is, it's, it's a it's great, a love. great, great candidate uh, for a remake for that reason, because the original was too <laughs> obtuse. Uh, and, uh, it's a very serious game in which you play a doctor and a talent's completely afflicted, and there are, uh, there's disease everywhere and it's very mysterious, almost kind of, you know, dark spiritual element to it. Uh, but it's you got a jump it, button. You did an interesting <laughs> hand gesture a, on dark spiritual element. I was, like I was holding a heart. Yeah, like exactly. Just ripped out of a corpse. Yeah. Or an orange. Or an orange. Same gesture, <laughs> it turns out. Um, but the, uh, the game is about walking around and talking to people and very slowly having an existential crisis, uh, about <laughs> the nature of death. But it's Sounds got a jump, like they put a jump, put a jump button in it. And the jump is pathetic. You just do a little kind of hop and it has absolutely no utility whatsoever. But I just love that you can jump in that game that has <laughs> not at all about. Is it like a real jump? Because most people can't jump that high. That is probably is quite an accurate jump. It's about how high I could jump. Mm. A little kind of like pathetic hop. A bound. A, a minor bound. A minor, a minor, yeah, pop. Um, <laughs> and so I was just, uh, I ended up just hopping through the woods, just into the wilderness and, uh, you know, hopped out through the, through the desert and found, uh, found a graveyard. And a man there who had things to say about death and change. I think I'm more, I think I'm far more uh, aware of when those things don't mesh, when it's, it's the game developer fucking up or, Mm. you know, sort of at least not corresponding to what I was expecting. So, you know, I could, you know, um, tit around in, Sherlock Holmes and the uh whatever it was Golden Frog of Crimes and Punishments or whatever yeah that's the one <laughs> the Golden Frog of Shoes I don't I can't remember <laughs> so I just named some words um and like you know I could probably play it so that Holmes was I don't know rubbing his bum against a lady while she was sitting on a chair and you know try and <laughs> get some minor enjoyment out of that but for me it was more are you writing the new season for bbc (laughs) for me it was more funny that sherlock at one point goes over and and discovers some footprints in a vegetable patch that a police officer is (coughs) looking right at and you're just like yeah he's already there it's fine you know and so the game itself was being weird or you know he solves uh, he solves these um crimes through ridiculous mini games it's it's essentially a 3d hidden object adventure but something about the fact that they did bother to make it 3d makes the hidden object adventure style stuff 
that much more hilariously mm. you know out of place and so i kind of i really love it but that that's the sort of thing that is jarring in a way that my own input into that world just isn't because i'm aware of it and i write it off almost mm. like i don't mm. consider it in in the same mental space as anything that the game gives me that the developers have done mm. it's interesting i was thinking about because i think there seems to be a common thread here, which is if a game lets you jump, it is a letting you into a certain threshold of silliness. Whereas removing your ability to jump, bearing in mind that humans in their day-to-day lives rarely jump. We can jump, but we don't do it a lot. But removing jumping from games is restrictive. Mm. Like in, I think when I was talking to someone from hi about Smite, they said that they actually at one point removed the jump button it didn't have um, jump when it launched that's yeah that's something like that yeah i couldn't remember um but people missed it and they mm. you know demanded to know where it was because it instantly made the movement feel that much more claustrophobic you know if you mm. if you don't have the ability to move vertically in some way you sort of you instantly feel a bit penned in i really noticed it with ethan carter for mm. example it was yeah. just like suddenly the game felt claustrophobic yeah i totally get it like it's weird you feel like you should be able to do it even though you almost never do it and when you do do it it's silly and that's a sort of interesting kind of yeah crossroads to find yourself on it's really interesting psychology to play uh, to just moving around uh just when you're asked to do a completely mean you'll go from a to b across a field um be able to jump gives you an impression of speed even if the jump is, is the same mm. speed of, as walking mm. and uh, it's also the same variation thing. yeah and, and also it's the same with rolling and there's always that anxiety about rolling where it looks faster briefly but then it'll take you a second to stand up and effectively if the balance if the game's balanced for this it will be the same amount of distance you've traveled to prevent you from just roll spamming roll to be faster uh, so just giving you the kind of roll and the jump and the run and the walk makes the act of just going across space as fun as you want to make it. So it, make, it lets you kind of command that experience a little bit. I would say, yeah, in terms of games with quite a serious tone that I've spoiled the tone off for myself, Dark Souls is probably one of them. <laughs> right. It's fundamentally a story about a man who does a lot of roly-polies. <laughs> oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, though, it's probably also worth bearing in mind that we've had some pretty serious conversations while I've been hopping on one leg or, you know, mm. jigging up and down. Or, Pip has I'm a range of idle animations. <laughs> really not capable of standing still. So perhaps that also helps me just write off what my character's doing because it's <laughs> boing, just like, boing, that's boing. just how normal people listen yeah. to other people. So an interesting thing about this actually is, um, and you know, third to what we were talking about earlier, uh, on the jumping question, um, Andromeda is the first time you can jump in Mass Effect. Oh, yeah. Um, and it's interesting to me that they have added it only in the context of a booster jetpack that your character is wearing. Mm. Couldn't you vault over small walls? You can vault. You can still vault. Um, but you can't, you know, you didn't have like the ability to just jump if you were anywhere in the world, right? So you could do a one-handed jump. What's a one-handed jump? A you play Vanquish. <laughs> you use your hand as leverage to jump over Okay, the like a little mantle. Oh, like, yeah. a, like a parkour move. Yeah. Yeah, like a little one-handed... <laughs> a mantle. A hop. There's a word for it. Is it? Yeah, it's mantling. I didn't know that. Hmm. A mantle is like a little cloak. Or a mantelpiece. Yeah. There's a lot of... It's English. I wonder if mantelpiece is where you put your mantle. I think it's because it's like the cloak of the fireplace. 
Interesting. Interesting. Like it's atop the fire. It's like um. Yeah, yeah. It's you know. like the fireplace's eyebrow. <laughs> <laughs> what? It's like the unibrow of a fireplace. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess. Yeah. But doesn't it mean like on top of or something or like surrounding or like? I think it's just Constantine. similar in French. Anyway. No. Anyway. Um, but, uh, because they've given you this power, but only in the context of, um, when you are suited up for combat, you have the, the jump pack. Yeah. You can't do it in most of the kind of... In the middle of a conversation. In the middle of a conversation. Vertically upwards 20 feet. you go fucking miles. <laughs> but it does mean that when you are, like, in an area, you can tit about a lot more than you previously could. Mm. Uh, and, you know, that, I mean, cause actually the jump animation is pretty cool. It feels pretty good. Yeah. Like they've done quite a good job with that. And that's a game whose animations are, as people all know, hit and fucking miss. Mm. But, um, yeah, there's, um, I think they've managed, they found it quite, they've, they've found a way of giving you that power when it's useful for the game in a context that allows them to also take it away again when it would be detrimental to the tone <laughs> to allow you to just bounce around yeah, like a, lot a dickhead. Of, a lot of games do that, actually. Like, uh, suddenly when you're indoors, you that you just can't fuck around anymore because yeah, that's why you're supposed to, supposed to talk to people. I think I'd really like it if they let me do Shepard's terrible dancing while having a meeting with Spectre. I'd just be like, yeah, having a groove. <laughs> what was that? Oh yeah, Saris or whatever his name was. <laughs> sure, Saris, agent of Spectre. Is that not who? Yeah. How much of that Wait, did I get wrong? Most of it. Oh, is uh, that not what they're called? No, Spectre? they are Spectres. They're not agents of Spectre. That's a James Bond thing. Oh, or possibly the other thing. What Captain thing? Scarlet was that Spectre? Spectrum. Oh, fine. Mm. Well, anyway, what's it in this thing? The council. Council. Is that not Spectres just are agents Spectre of the council. council. No. In- Inspectors. <laughs> Inspector Gadget. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, fine. And is his name not Samus? Saras? Saran. 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 Saran, like the rap. Yes. Okay. No, like, not, not with an E though. Saran. <laughs> like the rap. <laughs> <laughs> like the misspelled rap, yes. Oh, I didn't know. I've never seen it written down. Saran's got two A's in okay. it. Okay. Wait, if it's a rap. If it's a, if it's a Torian, it's got an E in it. I was thinking of Garrus. He's also a Torian. Yeah. They're both Torians. He's hot. Shall he we is. move on to a different question? Thank God. <laughs> oh, there was a PS to this question. Oh God. It was PS. My friend slash colleague has somewhat of a girl crush on Pip. Oh! <laughs> I'm sorry. This is I, I was, that, I, I, that, that would be aw. the exact noise you would hear if you picked the kind of the flirt option on Pip's dialogue wheel in uh, Mass Effect. <laughs> is it? Is no. that not just the noise that I make when anything happens? If Pip was a Zelda NPC, that yeah, would be exactly. the, the hello noise. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's like a clanger or something. <laughs> You just understood you in a whole new light. What, as a clanger? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Get um. a slide whistle. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> Pip, Rahul yes. writes, would, oh. would you... <laughs> for fuck's sake. I think you're talking to me. <laughs> I mean, in a sense, he was, uh, via the medium of writing things down that I subsequently read out. Uh, would you please say, hey, Zoe, fancy a pint? I might set it as her ringtone. Aw. Hang on. Don't. I feel really self-conscious. Stare directly at Pip. <laughs> yeah. No. Performance time now. <laughs> hey, Zoe. Fancy a pint? 
Is that did that sound normal? No, was good. Yes, that sounded normal. Okay, good, great. (laughs) That's a weird. This is not a service we're necessarily advertising on the podcast, but um, no, I might just start doing phonemes, and then you could put together a soundboard. All of the literally nothing could go wrong with that. (laughs) Don't do that. Let's start with schwa. (laughs) (laughs) A new phoneme every episode. (laughs) I feel like treasures of the earth. (laughs) Brought to you by our Patreon backers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an extra one this episode yeah, bonus. <laughs> it's the first episode you know like you how, have the you've got to hook them on right you've got to get yeah, them up yeah. I was going to say how do we end up going so silly during questions it's, it's, it's well for some of us it's booze and then uh, for Pip, <laughs> Pip's it's not, just, it's just Pip's just, oh uh, yeah just, I've just got sparkling water hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, there I am Luke writes hello hi I've been playing Horizon Zero Dawn as noted by Tom F. on Twitter, it's a very pretty game. In particular, it has one of the most beautiful and atmospheric night times I've encountered. Is this the car game? No, that's Forza Horizon. Oh, okay. Forza Horizon Zero Dawn would be an amazing game. But... <laughs> Where you, you tether cars with uh, a bow and arrow. Yeah, and, and ride them around. Hunt them in the wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Capture them in the post-apocalypse. <laughs> That'd be awesome. It's set in the future of the world in Pixar's cars. Yeah, God, the, the post-apocalypse. So scatters, cars scatters human hunters. Track down and... Hang on, isn't this adorable cars? cars. What? It's basically Mad Max, is it not? No. Well, yes. Thank you. (laughs) Close enough. I guess so. Like you could do the Pixar version of Mad Max and then you'd be fine. Yeah. Mm. What would that be like? Slightly less killing. Less. mm. (laughs) Um. The soft blue glow of machines roaming in the distance and the blinding glare of the moon through the trees and a convincing yet slightly alien sense of place. So what's your favourite nighttime in PC games? Thanks and keep up the pottery goodness, Luke. Uh, this one also has a PS, so let's do the PS first. Okay. PS, John Roberts is a very calming presence on the podcast. Is he as serene in real life? He is really chill. He's very chill. Yeah. He's probably listening to this. Very yeah. chilly. <laughs> just chillaxing yeah he's an extremely chill 45 dude 45 degree angle to the world mm, I've never yeah. seen him anything but extremely chill <laughs> more chill even than Graham and Graham is a very chill man yeah yeah he is I've only ever seen Graham get excited about FIFA <laughs> <laughs> I saw him run up an escalator once when he thought he might miss the last train that's desperation, though. Although he was chill enough to then go to Burger King, so... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Relaxed men we know. Mm. And now to the question. Best nighttime. I like games with night times where it's actually like nighttime and it's really dark. Okay. I will always, I'll always be a fan of daisy night times. I know survival is hugely overplayed now, but... It's one of those times where a a survival game of that sort, at the time where they weren't tiresome, uh, was the perfect time for a night a night time in a game that really meant something. Particularly in Armor's engine, which um, was very realistic and mm. it was fucking dark. I think was- I lost our friend Matt during night time in mm. uh, Daisy because we were exploring somewhere, and I think he fell in something in a cellar and it got to be night time and I couldn't find him and it was pitch dark so we had to cycle through some servers to try and 
find one where it was daytime. Yeah, <laughs> so that was why people could, cheated, but... We could find each other. Turned out he'd glitched through a wall and I had to hack him to death with my axe so that we could try and get him out because we thought that he might respawn somewhere more useful, but he respawned stuck in the wall again, I think, so... That was it for Matt? Yeah. Or I couldn't find him. One of the two. Mm. <laughs> Any top night times, Tom? I like my video game night times to be like 40% sunset. And then twenty percent night, and then forty percent. Do you so like them? Do you like them daytime but blue? Uh, yeah. <laughs> or red. I'll take. I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoy the transitions. I enjoy the the many beautiful colors of transitions. And video games have the opportunity to extend that beauty for a long time. And video games have become very, very good at uh, you know sunsets and sunrises. Mm. I enjoy or they them hype most. It up really well as well. You know, like they they yeah. can do all the sort of filters and shaders and whatnot that so, real life sometimes really fails at yeah it's like you'll see a, a really good sunrise happening and then um it'll go behind a cloud and that fucked it that's yeah it. it's, it's, it's like, only like you know you're gonna last about an hour so that's true of real sunrise though that's what i was that's talking, what about. We were oh, talking yeah. about yeah, yeah. <laughs> sorry. so whereas video games have the opportunity to present the most beautiful sunrise and sunset at every opportunity mm, and the witcher tree is very good at that mm. they i think it's coded into the, their skyboxes to give you the most gorgeous sunsets I went, I, I took several successive generations of uni friends to the oh, summer solstice at Stonehenge, which is all about staying up all night on that ancient monument. Oh, cool. It's probably the world's only like world wonder <coughs> that you're allowed to get drunk and dance on mm. once a year. Um, and the whole point of that is for the one glorious moment on that like morning in June when the sun comes up at the exact right angle that the stones are designed for. And they illuminate the ancient tomb and it opens and all the rest. Um, it doesn't really. What happens every year is it's cloudy and a load of pissed druids, uh, look, look at the buses, look at the, look at, look at the sun and go, uh, and then wander off to the, <laughs> <As that one's laughs> wander off to the line of Wilton Dorset buses queuing to That's deliver finished. <laughs> pissed. Hmm. stoned and coming down teenagers off one of the world's most precious ancient it's a grim scene <laughs> monuments. a grim scene yeah i don't know I games do it much like, better they do exactly i like games that have night times that involve bioluminescent creatures mm. or interesting lighting so if a game has done fairy lights really well or if a game has done you know fireflies or something i find those absolutely fascinating or if it's got like in destiny they've got some weird glowing sort of rocks as effects and mm. you know i i just i'm a sucker for that kind of thing just because it always looks so strange and so magical and if you get it right it can just be this absolutely lovely mm. experience i like um dark age of camelot's night times as well because they were genuinely threateningly dark well it's the dark age mm. yeah you're quite well you're quite right it wasn't the well-lit age of camelot <laughs> yeah like the street light age of camelot. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> the light pollution no of quite right it <laughs> was a stupid thing for me to say in hindsight <laughs> zach writes dear crepe and waffle bar Ooh. <laughs> sorry that's Pip's nice. hungry i am I've recently been searching for inspiration in world building. I'm curious to know which game has your favorite lore and just as a general pleasure to explore and learn about. Thanks and keep up the pod. Zach. Lore. I love lore, as everyone knows. Pip, how do you feel about lore? Whoa. <laughs> 
so much to remember. Sometimes some of it will like seep in. But, What's one be... bit of lore you remember? Hang on, can you come back to me? Yes, Tom, okay. favourite lore? <laughs> well, I, there's a recency effect here because Tyson Numenera is still fresh in my mind. That's got really cool lore. Mm-hmm. Top lore. Uh, I think lore I have loved. <laughs> a new series on the Creighton Grubber. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> weirdly, uh, I was very, very fond of <laughs> Wing Commander's lore, uh, way back when I was a teenager. Mm. And I, um, back when, before I would find the idea of uh, a race called the Kilrathi, uh, <laughs> to be laughable. Uh, and they, is, that, is that the one that all looked like Tony the Tiger? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so, uh, it's cause it had like Mark Hamill and like, uh, is it John Reese Davis? Like loads of people in it. And also, uh, people dressed in Norman Lion suits <laughs> exactly. that were, had big flappy mouths and they were the aliens. But I was so into it when I was a teenager. I was like, oh my God, it's proper space, it's space opera. Who, who are these lions? <laughs> Tell me about their past. I want to know about and them. And this is the exact legacy that Mass Effect picked up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Like, you know, uh, let's return to that drum, but obviously I love Mass Effect lore. Mm. I love all lore. I'm just omni lore. But, I do think a lot of people with Andromeda are going to hit the fact that something they loved 10 years ago when Mass Effect 1 came out. Yeah. Like, it's a bit silly in places. And that's okay if you're in, you know, if you're willing to kind of tolerate mm. it. But I, I, I am a little bit worried for the amount of editorials that might be sort of framed as like, we've just realized this is silly and this is extremely upsetting. Because I mean, it is, Mass Effect is just advanced wing commander, right? Yeah. Like, it's not ultimately. And let's not be ashamed about that, because I don't want to be ashamed about that. No, it's no point being ashamed like, about that. You know, it's too late for us. Space Lions I have loved. Uh, <laughs> Wing Commander. I, I can't remember what. The, were they the Kilrathi? I thought the Kilrathi were the bad guys in the Space Lion. The I don't Kilrath- know. Let's not get into it. <laughs> they, they definitely are lion people. They are lion people. I don't think they're... I'm not sure they're the... I don't know. I'm going to have to look at this up. Yeah, I mean, the the best thing about... So, you know, I went to see um, Squadron 42 mm. being filmed, and I met Mark Hamill and Don Rhys-Davies. Yeah. It was, this, it was this reunion of mm. Chris Roberts and, and the rest of the, you know, the, the Wing Commander narrative team. And they're wonderful people. Mm. And what struck me was there was no sense that Wing Commander was a little bit silly. And I like Wing Commander. No, I like Wing Commander. I like space nonsense, Mm. right? Like, it's not, that's not necessarily a criticism, but there was a sense to which I was sort of expecting maybe some sense that like, do you remember when we did the Cuddly Lions? (laughs) (laughs) No, um, but only because it was already brought up for me in the context of like, well, we pushed the boundaries once. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> as far as we could push them in the 90s which was a big cuddly lion yeah um but now we can push it all the way to a cgi mark okay. hamill like yeah, okay. and, and that um you know i admire the commitment hmm. even if i think maybe it would die if it was self-aware <laughs> yeah, i think maybe. most law does you know like self-aware law is either genius or it's terrible hmm. illidan is malfurion's brother <gasps> Dun, dun, dun. Wow, you don't even like lizard things. No. Well, I mean, I, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, no, I, I don't mind them. It's just that I've never really, like, I've, I don't really care for the lore, but that apparently I've read enough times that. Why did you remember that? It has sunk in. Well, mostly because I, um, I don't know. I, he, they fought over a lady. Tyrand Whisperwind. 
I was going to say Sylvanas Windrunner, but Close, sure. but different elf. And he is in Tomb Prison or something. Hang on, no. Maybe. And He's imprisoned. He, for a thousand years mm-hmm. of, or something because of <coughs> maybe fell magic. Something and like that. he wants to know if you're ready. Are no, you ready? No, no. Am I ready? <laughs> Let's get ready. <laughs> Have I fucked it? Uh, yes. Oh. <laughs> you got really close and then you pipped it. The, um, the, oh, uh, I thought I was like, isn't his thing like, are you ready? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's gladiators. <laughs> Ilid- <laughs> yeah, Ilid- like you've skipped ahead uh, past Warcraft 3 and into the Burning Crusade, but like, so no! Illidan's thing isn't standing atop the, the, you know, some there. shattered fortress in Draenei and saying, gladiators, are you ready? It's, you are not prepared. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of the way there. That's really close. It is really close. It's the opposite of what he says. No, he's asking, are you ready? Because you might not be, because you might not be prepared. You see. But yes, but they're the opposite ways of expressing that same idea. He'd hate the scouts. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I can only hear him with the voice of the gladiators announcer man now. John. Yeah. Yes, John. But no, that was his name, wasn't it? John. Yes, it was. Yeah. I just, it's silly now in hindsight. Oh, well. I've always bounced off Blizzard Law, and now I realise why. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As Illidan famously quoth, let's get ready to rumble. Also, it is the year of the mammoth. Is it? Yeah. Well Last done, mammoth. Last year was the year of the kraken. In Blizzard things? Hearthstone. Hearthstone. Mm. Or, so I guess maybe Warcraft? I don't know. But they decided that this is the year, in this, the year of the mammoth. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, I don't know, there was the year of Luigi. There was the year of, I can't believe it's not the year of Luigi. (laughs) Then a few more years. We'll look back on the Legion, the Legion of Luigi. Um, (laughs) The year of Luigi is a golden age. It was a golden age. It was. Yeah. 2015. Whenever it was. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, that's two bits of lore that I got right, and a bit of gladiators. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't know why I remember all of this stuff. I don't even like Blizzard lore either. I should stress. I just haven't forgotten it, and I don't understand how that happens. Well, anyway, I genuinely don't. I think I think I might be too forgiving of this stuff because it just stays in my mind forever. Yeah, and I have to live with that. You look at me like really judgy. And also a little bit laughy when I That's my fun face. Judgy and laughy. (laughs) When I I don't remember someone's (laughs) name properly. Like that. The Snow White expansion. (laughs) (sighs) Another another question resolved. I think so, yeah. Um, What am I doing? I don't know. Uh, Raj writes, Dear C&C folks, I really liked your discussion regarding Tides of Numenera last week. I especially liked the complexity and the ideas as you presented them. I think I could get into a story like that. Basically, I want to know if I should play this. My dilemma lies in two areas. One, I don't have the patience for games that take 50 to 60 hours due to attention span and life obligations. So how long do you think this game takes? 
would you recommend replaying for different endings? Two, I've tried playing a few of the more hardcore RPGs before, like Pillars of Eternity and Tyranny, etc., and basically I just got bored of the fiddliness of setting up my party in the combat. It completely overshadowed any enjoyment I got from the story. For reference, I love The Witcher 3, which allows you to decrease the difficulty so that you can focus on the story and the quests. What's your verdict? Thanks. So, this is like, we seem to be getting one of these every week. Um, which is the, yeah. should I be the person, is, is Tides of Numenera for me question. Um, in, in this specific, last week I think I ended up saying no, but in this specific context, um, as for how long it takes, I think it's probably a 30 to 40 hour game-ish. It's long. Um, but I think it's quite nicely chunked. I think you could yeah. play it for a couple of hours and get a little side quest out of it and then, you know, keep on chipping at away. Yeah. It? it breaks down nicely. You're not going to yeah. feel compelled to, you know, lean into it wholesale and do it all in one go or anything. Yeah, sure. It will spread itself out quite nicely. It's got a very good journal as well for keeping track of your quests. Yeah, reminding yourself. Which updates happens. every time a quest develops. Um, uh, in terms of replaying, it certainly is very, very open to replaying because it's very reactive. But at the same time, I think you could play it through once and feel that you had your journey with it. And that was I think sufficient. so. Maybe the best way is to play it. And then if you know other people who have played it, just sort of share your comparative experiences. Yeah, that's been fun. Uh, two, um, actually, if you got bored of Pillars specifically because of the combat, then you probably like this because yeah, there's almost none of that. Yeah, you can completely, almost, almost completely circumvent combat, and you don't have to fight at all. Yeah, if you, yeah, you, and if you're in combat, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. None, none of that kind of gritty, old school tactical uh, stuff. Cool. Question answered, largely Yay. without nonsense. That was good, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we managed. Yeah. Everyone. Uh, finally, to round out the evening with. A grudge. Yes. As we open mm. the dusty tome. Yay, not so dusty. I've got it open no. every morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and get ready to inscribe a fresh grudge. I will. Pen is ready. Primed. Primed and ready. Clicked. To receive the grudge of Carl. Nice. Hello, crusty crawdad, he writes. Demonstrating that you can combine any two words that begin with C. Hmm. Get an acceptable headline pun. We should initially pause here to note that that started as a running joke 179 episodes ago. It's not thinking and about that's that. that's fucking mental. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mm. A walloping howdy from the colonies. Hi. A walloping howdy. Walloping. I think that's why I initially wasn't sure which colonies. Walloping makes him sound Australian. Mm. Yeah, well, I thought Howdy wallaby. makes him sound American. Maybe it's Canadian. A wallopy howdy. Or maybe these are just different Are you arguing that entirely? Canadian's what you get if you combine Australian and American? No, I just say it felt like a compromise because we haven't mentioned them yet. Canada feels like a compromise. <laughs> oh... <laughs> No. Uh, so do I. Let's all move there. Yeah. yeah I'd, Honest to God. Let's, yeah. let's go. Mm. Um, a walloping howdy from the colonies. I have one for the book of grudges. Presumably he has a walloping howdy for the book of grudges. <laughs> <laughs> the book of grudges says thank you. <laughs> Is he romancing the book of grudges? He's romancing the book of grudges. <laughs> About time someone... Romance, the book I want it noted somewhere in, in a different book, possibly. <laughs> An unused book of grudges. <laughs> yes, that I was not responsible for derailing this one. <laughs> no, you weren't. Sorry, this has all been me, and I'm, I'm, I do apologise. It's wine. Um, <laughs> You're overtired. 
Todd and emotional. Daddy has not enough sleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> oh, walloping howdy oh, from the colonies. I'm starting again every time I'm interrupted, <laughs> even by myself. As such, I will now start again. A walloping howdy from the colonies. I've played... Oh, well, shit. I've fucked up. A walloping... <laughs> so much regret. <laughs> you wish you never came back, didn't you, Pip? Oh, the grudge book is going to get some serious filling in tonight. <laughs> that came out wrong! <laughs> <laughs> The book of Grudges evening was so clear until the start of this conversation. Bollocks. Oh dear. Oh. It was if you if you would more than a filling. Oh. Thank you very much. Oh, that's a callback. That's oh, yeah, very nice. Oh my goodness. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like this grudge has already generated so many grudges that we're on a kind of exponential. Uh, danger curve that could lead to yeah grudge oh apocalypse. god <laughs> got a Merbius strip of grudges Merbius I said it wrong <laughs> <laughs> it's not been a good evening for me Merbius old, old. <laughs> I was just thinking about how gloriously like Moorish the O and the E and the <laughs> the Murray the, the Murbius so and then it I'm sorry of, I can't believe people patron this. Oh, I'm uh, so sorry. You can just talk. Merbius. Merbius stripe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Carl writes. Yes, he does. Is it a walloping howdy from the colonies? It's a walloping howdy from the colonies, Holy Pip. Shit, how can we know? Oh. <laughs> a walloping howdy from the colonies. I, I sh- I've been under. A walloping howdy from the colonies. I have one for the Book of Grudges. I have recently started playing Dragon's Dogma, Dark Arisen. In the starting village, and I'm sure all other hub towns down the line, it is possible to go into pretty much any house and search for loot. While I love exploring a location, I don't think this is the right incentive to make you do so. It's not exciting to me to just go into a stranger's house, bash their jars, and take their food. But I feel compelled to do it, so that I do not miss out on something that will be a help to me down the line, although I tend to hoard in RPGs and rarely use consumables anyway. This just makes exploring the town a boring slash fest, collecting loot that I feel I need. Furthermore, it can be a bit of an immersion breaker for me. And he quotes... Sorry, fellow villager, but I must smash this box, steal your stuff, leave your house a mess, and make you cower in fear, because this large nut may be essential to my destiny. <laughs> You've all heard that before. I guess this problem in gaming goes all the way back to Zelda, but it seems to me that almost all exploring I do in these games is just running around towns and smashing stuff. I wish that it was either more interesting, such as in a Deus Ex game where loot is hidden behind hacking minigame or a hidden passcode, or not in the game at all. Keep on trucking, a fan from across the pond, who probably didn't know when he wrote this, how badly I would butcher it. 
It's in the book, though. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> good. A good entry grudging. to the book. Top yeah. grudging. That is dumb. Uh, Chrono Trigger deserves mention here for mm. being the only RPG I can think of that actively calls you on that. Huh. It's good. Hmm. I think I've spent a bunch of time coming up with alternative explanations for why it might have happened in Zelda, you know, so perhaps, you know, the villagers are just <coughs> used to Link being this douchebag and they have, like, a system of smashable pots that they get really cheap just so that he's got something to do when he breaks into their house and all of mm. the cool stuff is, you know, under floorboards or whatever as soon as they see that he's nearby. But, um, yeah, like, that is a that is a thing that bothers me maybe more in things like was it oblivion maybe where you just sort of pick someone's pockets and it would be some random assortment of nonsense that didn't make sense or um bioshock infinite where oh, you yeah. just go oh, through yeah. the bins and it would be like here's a hot dog like, and some candy and floss a, yeah. Yeah, yeah and like oh my favorite thing was opening a, a box of chocolates and instead of actual chocolates being inside it was just like here's a pineapple or something i was just like really in that what, box eating a hot dog out of the bin is a very good way to give yourself a terrible case of the walloping howdies i am going to put both you <laughs> and bioshock infinite's uh loot system in the book i think that feels like a good. <laughs> I am a in the book now. <laughs> to sign just, off on this. All yeah. aspects of Thurston. It's, just been, <laughs> it's recorded. been a long evening. Like Jafar frankly. at the end of Aladdin. <laughs> what happens to him at the end of Aladdin? Uh, does he get stuck in the lamp? He does, yeah. Yeah. That's not really a book, is it? No, but it's just someone being stuck in something else. But you're not in. Your name is written in the book. Oh. There's a grudge that is being born against you. I see. Like, it does sound like the book is already not filled. So I... trapped in the book, that would be like that would be Ella weird Enchanted. for this high concept podcast bit. No, Ella Enchanted <laughs> has someone's boyfriend trapped in a book. Okay, it can happen then. It's, it can press, happen. Press, press, yeah. it's like law, basically. Yeah. You know, it's... The Louis Through documentary, Ella Enchanted. <laughs> Why? Would... <sighs> I don't know, Pip. F- firing on some cylinders. Uh, we must be crashing into the finale here we have Shall basically we, run out of we, stuff to talk about yeah let's end this yes shit show <laughs> <laughs> feel free to send us more grudges that would be nice yeah we always i, like I, I love reading a good other grudge. people's good. grudges yeah they're really good. good send us your most walloping howdies i don't know why not I love to that. chris <laughs> i love that phrase <laughs> um <laughs> she introduced the next pod as like hello and walloping, walloping howdies yeah. to one and all yeah exactly <laughs> walloping howdy and welcome <laughs> sound like a festive greeting <laughs> yeah <exactly. laughs> well let's uh wait and see if we remember to do that in the next podcast exactly <laughs> well i don't think so um, we will be wanting to come on that drink indeed no sorry but i think uh people could Cut any number of interesting uh, ringtones out of our contributions. To this well, that's true. Indeed, yes. top phonemes, everybody. Yeah, well done. Good work. I suppose. Um, <laughs> if you would like to send us a question or a grudge for a few, few, fuck, for a future episode of the Crank and Crowbar, you can do so by emailing us at questions at crankandcrowbar.com. 
You can also tweet us a question on Twitter at Crate and Crowbar or hang out on our Discord channel to discuss the episode right there. The link is in the website in the top bar somewhere. In the website. website. It's inside the website. Go online and click to CrateandCrowbar.com. We have a Patreon. We already have a Patreon. (laughs) Inexplicably... The Great and Crowbar are supported by our very kind and generous Patreon backers uh, that allow us to do this podcast and uh, a growing range of spin-offs, including Tom and I's Miniatures Experience. <laughs> you can find out more about the Patreon at <laughs> patreon.com <laughs> forward slash Great and Crowbar. <laughs> Finally, if you'd like to follow us as individuals, Pip is... Oh, hang on. What? I decided to put you first because I knew you weren't ready. I'm at Philippa War, which is at P-H-I-L-I-P-P-A-W-A-R-R. Well, strike me down. She was ready. Tom. Uh, I'm at at PCG Ludo, which is L-U-D-O. As always. And I'm at C Thurston, which is... Pip, you were saying? Uh, I forgot that you hadn't done the spelling. <laughs> <laughs> which is W A L L. O-P-I-N-G-H-O-W-I-D-I-E-S. Wait. <laughs> also, get tickets for our res thing. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We're going to res. I will mean, be, or don't. It will, it will last <laughs> the amount of time that we've been allocated. We'll be ushered out of the door at some point, and then there's RPS drinks down the pub. Indeed, and it won't end like this. No. All right. Thanks for Walloping listening. Walloping howdies, oh, everybody. Damn it. <laughs>